Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the Bald Face Truth. Well, I said yesterday the spider senses were tingling, and that I felt like something was coming down the pipeline with the Pac 12 conference. Last night, after this radio show, shortly after I went off air, George Klyovkov, the Pac 12 commissioner, agreed. To a sit-down, John Wilner and I, as part of the Kanzano and Wilner podcast, interviewed George Klyovka for about 35, 40 minutes last night. And let me tell you, uh, I was I was interested in what he had to say. I nearly fell out of my chair a couple of times. I largely believe that he was filling a void by going public that... He probably knew down deep he needed to fill. He's been silent since July 29th at Pac-12 Media Day in Los Angeles. Broke that silence yesterday. You'll hear some of the audio from the interview on the show today. If you want the full podcast, the full 35, 40 minutes, you can get it wherever you get a podcast. Just search for Kanzano and Wilner. But I'm here to talk about what it means, what I learned from it, what I thought, what I think happens next. Really interesting interview with George Klyovkov and uh, it was fun to do the interview with Wilner usually I'm working one-on-one in those interviews but Wilner and I were kind of peppering the commissioner back and forth and trying to drill down on like why it is that he's been so quiet Uh, what does it mean what uh, what is he thinking when it comes to UCLA surprised me by bringing UCLA back into the into the equation uh, what about the misinformation that's out there? What about the confidence? Does he have confidence in the commitment from the 10 remaining members of the Pac-12 conference? And, oh, by the way, what's the right blend of media rights uh, exposure and revenue? Because that's the balance act right now that I think the Pac-12 is probably knee-deep in. Like, do they take the money from a streaming service, or do they value the distribution and the glow of ESPN? George Klyovkov, Pac-12 commissioner, uh, gave a wide-ranging interview. There were no limitations. Nothing was off, off, uh, you know, off the record, and nothing was off limits when it came to this interview. I wouldn't do an interview like that, but it was really interesting to hear him talk at length about all the stuff that we have all talked about without any kind of noise from the Pac-12 conference. I started the interview by talking to Klyovkov about you know, why he's been silent. He broke his silence. And it was really interesting because originally what we were going to do is we were going to interview Greg Sankey, the SEC commissioner. And I thought, you know, it'll be a good first interview, whatnot. And Wilner said, why don't we ask for George Klyovkov? And I said, yeah, I I just don't know if George is going to talk. We probably should ask. Here's what Klyovkov said when I asked him why he's been silent for so long. Yeah, I, I haven't really done media other than Football Media Day since June 30th and the announcement of UCLA and USC. 
And, and that is because we've been heads down trying to get our work done. You know, we've been very focused on our media rights deal. We're in the middle of that. And that's the highest priority for the schools. And that's why I should be spending my time on. I, I also don't believe in negotiating in the media, although that seems not to be the way everyone approaches it, but that's all right. Uh, I'd rather put our heads down, get our work done, and then share good news when we have it. There's his tactic. I don't think it's totally right. Uh, and and look, here's what I think when it comes to George Klyadkov's silence. I think it probably is wise to not publicly negotiate a media rights deal. Like, I, I don't think it's to his best interest or the Pac-12's best interest to be out there publicly negotiating. But, 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 I think there are some stakeholders here. Fans, alumni, recruits, media members, casual parties who are interested, people whose jobs depend on the Pac-12 conference being together and staying together. I think there are some parties here that feel like they are invested and they have largely been left in the dark. And I think it is a mistake by the Pac-12 to have the commissioner go silent from July 29th all the way up until mid-September. Uh, I think that, you know, meanwhile, you've got the Big 12 commissioner out talking. you got Kevin Warren of the Big Ten going on, you know, uh, national television, taking a victory lap. You have people saying we're not done expanding. you got media reports that are out there that are, uh, you know, basically circulating and raising all kinds of doubt and anxiety in the Pac-12 footprint. And so I think it was wise for George Kliavkov to go public and talk. I think he needed to do it. I think it was overdue. I, I think he probably should have done it a month ago when there was a bunch of speculation and talk out there. He doesn't need to undermine the integrity of their of their whole search and all this and how their, their, their quest to get the media rights deal done. But I think it's important that he exudes confidence. And it might be that a month ago, maybe he wasn't that confident that Oregon and Washington were staying in the Pac-12 conference. He certainly sounded like the commitment uh, to the conference was there. I want you to listen to this clip, second clip from the interview with George Klyovkov that posted just this morning. Here's Klyovkov talking about that misinformation. John Wilner asks him about the podcast report from the New York Post. Andrew Marchand said, hey, the Pac-12 and ESPN are hundreds of millions of dollars apart. I actually believe that ESPN is probably the source of this leak. They probably are telling Marshawn, hey, we're, we're not anywhere near uh, getting a deal done. But here's what George Kriavka said when John Wilner asked him about it. You, you probably saw or heard the Andrew Marshan report, New York Post media reporter said on his podcast last week that ESPN and Pac-12 were hundreds of millions of dollars apart. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. <laughs> uh, what's your reaction to that? Well, listen, I, you know, since June 30th, we've heard a chorus of, you know, uh, things reported through the media, almost always not attributable to an individual, uh, you know, but reported that are, in my estimation, attempts to destabilize our conference. And, you know, for the first couple of weeks that uh, it had an effect and everybody was, you know, kind of vibrating as a result of some of this nonsense. Uh, at, at this point, our 10 schools are completely focused on the future and being together and confident in each other and um it, it's now almost a running joke at our board meetings what you know what's what's the latest nonsense that someone has thrown against the wall and see seeing whether or not someone will report on that front people are nervous about oregon and washington some of those back channel reports um and then also i've been hyper focused on 
you know, is this conference galvanized, talking to athletic directors. But from your standpoint, are you confident that all 10 schools will sign a grant of rights agreement? I think the TED schools will sign a grant of rights agreement if we put the right agreement in front of them, which is why we're spending so much time focused on getting an agreement that will allow all of our schools not just to compete, but to thrive. The Big 12 situation, you know, you mentioned that at Media Day. Uh, I, be I believe you said to CBS Sports that you guaranteed that none of the Pac-12 schools would be going to the Big 12. Do you, is that still the case? Yes, that's still the case. Because what I've been wondering with that aspect of it is, like, if you're if you're a Pac-12 school, it, you know, Arizona's or Utah or Colorado, right, and you see what's going on with Oregon and Washington, and you're not sure that they're how long they're going to be in the conference, and there you got the Big 12 as what would seem to be a stable landing spot, right? Because the Big 12 has already been plucked from its you know of its top brands. That's what I'm really curious about is why would why are you confident that those four corner schools are not going to jump why why do you feel like they are committed to the conference well I, you know i talk to our presidents and chancellors and athletic directors all the time and we have conversations about this and everyone has committed to working together to get a great grant of rights following a good media rights deal and I, I take people at their word. Takes people at their word. I almost fell out of my chair there because USC gave their word, so to speak. Kevin Warren in the Big Ten gave their word, so to speak. Um, I wanted to uh, slap my forehead when he said that because uh, you've been burned before, George. Uh, Stephen, Sean, your reaction just to the first couple of clips of the George Klyovkov interview. We'll have much more of this throughout the show today. Yeah, that that clip right there uh, concerns me a little bit, and maybe you know it might just be because of the Larry Scott era. It might be because the USC UCLA thing happened out of nowhere. But to just take somebody at their word, right? Like that doesn't make sense to me. We've learned that that doesn't work in this type of business in the college football landscape. The alliance was supposed to help out the Pac-12, obviously, and it, you know they took teams away from the conference. So um, you know that that worries me a little bit. And even though you know he hasn't talked much. Publicly, like he said, you know, he's had his head down. They've been trying to get things done. He hasn't talked much. That concerns me a little bit. But I will say in this interview, John, he sounds very confident with where he's at and what he's doing. So that does give me a little bit of confidence, um, just knowing that he. it seems like he has a plan of what he wants to do with the conference. He hasn't said it out loud because, obviously, you know, you can't do that. But it at least seems like he's confident in what he's doing. Yeah, as Steven said, he's extremely confident in what the Pac-12 is doing. He seems to be laughing off a lot of news stories that we've seen. Uh, you know, a lot of sort, a lot of you know leaked potential deals that we've seen. And um, yeah, I'm trying to decide if it's you know some people walk around with confidence, but they have a lot of insecurities. But they still walk around with their chest puffed out, and it's kind of a fake confidence on the outside. I'm trying to decide if that's what George is doing, or if he's truly confident in the uh, the future of the Pac-12 and feels really good about where they are. I thought I thought he, I'm glad he did the interview. And I want to play more later in the show. Like he made some really interesting comments about UCLA and some other things. But I'm glad he did the interview because I felt like there was a void there, and he filled that vacuum by just coming out and talking about 
some of the process. We got into the streaming versus linear television conversation. I asked him about the future of the Pac-12 networks, all of that stuff. But I'm just glad he was talking today. And I didn't agree with everything that he said, but I also like was really picking through what he said. I think he was very intentional with some of the language he used. And, you know, he said, if we get the right grant of rights deal in front of our partners. And what he's saying there is, look, they're not just going to sign any deal. We're going to have to be creative in how we retain our schools. We also know, and this was talked about at length in this podcast, that that the college football playoff expansion probably helped the Pac-12 conference as much as anything in just sort of settling down the landscape. We'll play more of his comments coming up. Bruce Barnum, the Portland State football coach, going to be with us next Yogi Roth of the Pac-12 Network's right on his heels. We'll get back to the Klyovkov stuff. I've got more to play, more to talk about, but I think it's a really interesting day in the college football world today as George Klyovkov gave an exclusive interview talking about the Pac-12, the meteorites deal, the future of this conference. He seems very confident that the Pac-12's 10 remaining members are going to stay on board and they're moving in the right direction. More ahead. Leave it here. you got the BFT. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Bruce Barnum, the Portland State football coach, is a straight shooter. He came on this show and he said, I think it was like two weeks ago, he said that he thought University of Washington was a really good team. People rolled their eyes. They said, that's just coach speak. Washington uh, upset Michigan State on Saturday. The Huskies are 3-0. and Bruce Barnum, the Portland State coach, they're headed to Montana this Saturday. They've got a Big Sky conference game, 1 o'clock kickoff Pacific time. Bruce Barnum joining us now. You were not lying about Washington, were you? Uh, yeah, yeah, John, you told me not to make stuff up on your show. Thanks for having us, number one, having <laughs> the back. mics on. I know your docket's full with real people, but, yeah, I mean, you watch the film, you, it was obvious. I saw their spring game, and that's why I scheduled my bye week uh, for right now. Um, you know, just guess now these money games or play-up games go. and um, Didn't know much about DeBoer, but then I watched that first game, and, the, you know, the first opening day of, Pac-10, 12, whatever the hell it is now, football, and I said, "This is a real team. I don't <laughs> care what I don't care what the everybody else says." But anyway, did you get a chance to see the Oregon State Montana State game? Uh, did you get down on the sideline at Providence Park? No, didn't. Uh, you know, we don't play Montana State this year. Um, uh, you already know my feelings on the. Um, the venue being taken from the city, uh, and I did had nothing. I actually, I did. I had some stuff. It was bye week. I'm full of Montana. I mean, I've watched. I think their entire past six years with Kent Bear, their D coordinator hasn't changed. Anyway, no, I watched some of the Washington game. Just a score. You know, I just mm-hmm. followed the score while I was uh, doing some things, and you know, so I turned it on at the end. You know, and, you know, Michigan State was, you know, trying to make a run back at Husky Stadium. But that's all I saw, really, at football. I, watched, I always watch the late. I, DV, I DVR them. You know what? I DVR I... every game. You push these buttons on your thing. We've talked about this. I have every – my thing says, like, 90% full. It's all football. So I race the ones I don't know anybody at. 
Um, and I zip through them at night before I go to bed just to see what people are doing versus man, see what they're doing six, see what they're doing coverage-wise. Uh, but sometimes I got I got to watch the North Dakota State, the only game I really sat down and said, okay, I'm going to stay up and make some dinner uh, for people. But everybody went to bed. I stayed up and watched that North Dakota State-Arizona game. When you look at the difference between – FBS and FCS programs. Is that gap widening? Is it narrowing? Is it narrowing in some cases? Like, you know, there are just some programs that are able to play more competitively and are getting closer. What do you see happening between the two divisions? Well, uh, I see it as three divisions, uh, John, honestly. Yeah. Um, I've got FBS. I've got, uh, what the hell do we call it? I call it uh, Min Major. Yeah. Mid majors and FCS. I see three. The mid majors, you know, you're upset anytime you talk about them. But to me, the San Jose States of the world, you know, they don't have. They're they're the have-nots of their FBS, you know, of their big conference. In my mind, uh, just they don't have some of the resources, um, whatever. In the money um, fuels a lot of it. The facilities fuels the majority of it, you know. Um, so um, they don't have it. I remember going to Arkansas. We talked about that many moons ago. We played Arkansas a while back. And so many other press guys. They leave press guides in the locker room, you know, so you can weed through the press guide and look if you're bored. And, uh, they have, like, four pages of, like, assistant help, help for the football program. <laughs> and I'm looking at that going, all right, I could feel you know, a quarter of this page if I made, you know, big print. But, you know, that's the difference. <laughs> uh, Bruce Barnum is with us. You go into Montana. It's a tough place to play. It's a tough program. Uh, how do you feel going into this game with a week off, a week to prepare? What do you see on film? Uh, it, it, I love the venue. I think for FCS, for our level, and, you know, it's not the big house. It's not Autzen when it's full. It's not Husky. It's not Corvallis when they when they finish it. Research whatever the new name's going to be. But you know, for FCS football, it's twenty two ish or more. It, it, they are they built the stands so they're right on you. I mean, the sideline they have padded sidelines. You know, so <laughs> because you're going to run in it if you're on the full speed. The fans are right on you. It's loud. It's a fun place to play. Uh, they just built a bunch more football facilities, etc. It's a fun place. I love the venue. I, I tell my guy we sell it, you know, kind of half team will travel. You're about to play in the mecca of FCS football as far as venues. Uh, we play the music. They got the, you know, there's a country western theme out there. It's Montana. So the, the Cotton Eye Joe song, uh, Beer for My Horses or something, Whiskey for My, some uh, a song. That's what they play during pregame. We try to prepare them for all that, but. On top of that, their lights out and their defense is, I mean, they're number two in the country right now. Uh, and their their defense is outstanding. So it's it's fun to prep for. Last time we were there, you know, we're, we're here for homecoming again. We're there homecoming. Uh, they don't want us in the parade. Uh, I was going to speak at the fire because I know the head coach. But, you know, last time up there, we beat them on homecoming. So you never know. Uh, you never know. It's college football Saturday. Still got to play the game. I don't want them to put this on their bulletin board, but I feel like, this might be Bruce Barnum's best team since when? Oh, I, you know, John, I think we're a playoff team. It's just how I start, man. Uh, I've said that. It, you start to play up games. 
you know, and my and other people aren't in my level that have the finances. I, I think we talked about this. They're paying FCS, you know, teams to come into their place and play them. There's a non-scholarship FBS, FCS, I'm sorry, league conference. They pay those guys to come to them, you know, and they they start 2-0. I'm 0-2, possibly 1-1, let one slip away. But um, So I think I have a playoff team. We're banged up. Uh, we healed some. Uh, but ready to go. They just... We just happened to be starting with the number two team in the country. <laughs> you gotta love it, man. Yeah, you're, but you know what? After what you've played, San Jose State, Washington, do you feel like it prepares you for a game like this better than maybe if you had played Western Oregon or somebody else in the early part of the season? Speed wise, yes. Um, I don't care what happens in conference; they're going to be slower. The players on the field are going to be slower than Washington. So the game will slow down a little bit um, for my team on, the, on on my side of it. And you mainly talk about the quarterback, you know. How's the game? Is it flashing by him or does he understand it? And it, 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 the game slowed down for the quarterback, finally. You know, you hear that phrase sometimes. But that's a bonus of it, you know. Uh, I'm not saying Montana's slow, but I don't think they're as fast as the Huskies in the back end of um, San Jose State, but they make up for it in different ways uh, that we just have to make sure we adjust to. Coaches are paranoid, right? Uh, I've been around coaches, and some of them are very focused on, you know, not letting anybody see practice or maybe getting some misinformation out there. How how paranoid is Bruce Barnum when it comes to that week-to-week, who's healthy, who's hurt, what are we working on, who's at practice kind of stuff? Well, it doesn't matter in my world. John, because you can, I've got four or five levels of the library. You can sit and, you know, read uh, anything. Dante's Inferno, Kill a Mockingbird, Old Man in the Sea, which you said you had a copy of. I've never seen it. I don't believe you. And and watch our football practice. And I can't yeah. do anything about it. So I open it up to everybody, you know. Does it, um, is it a disadvantage that people, like opposing teams, could tell a student, hey, go to the library, film their practice for us, you know, here's 50 bucks. Right. Uh, I have that issue, yes. I've had, you know, <laughs> it's an issue here. So my world is, okay, um, uh, good luck guessing when I'm going to call it. Go ahead and prepare for it. And that's kind of how I, we call the game. You know, we might not surprise anybody with, with what we're doing this week. Yeah. Now, here's a game plan for these guys. But, you know, what am I going to call it? What are you going to do? How are you going to gonna you know, be fast enough to check to this. Well, it's not the only thing I'm doing out of that. We're doing this out of it. This is the only tweak out of it. So, you know, are you going to five wise, one wide? Okay, well, here's the five things you do. That ball snapped. You know, guess right. So there's a wing to it, and I understand. I think it's cool. I think it's cool when you can say, okay, close practice. You know, we, I can't do that. I don't have the, any way to do that here at Portland State. Bruce Barnum with us, Portland State football coach. Uh, your guys are obviously near and dear to the hearts of kids in our community. They they helped out at Camp Exceptional. we got a big uh, Camp Exceptional Portland State game. That's uh, the Weber State game coming down the pipeline. But we need you guys to play well and get some Ws because that results in people getting to the stadium, right? Agreed. I totally agree. I need to win games this way. That's the goal. You know, everything you do in the offseason, try to build winners off the field so it turns into wins on the field. That's what 
that we're trying to accomplish here, no matter what the obstacles, no matter what the hell's going on. So ready to go. Uh, don't bitch. Let's roll. I like that. Bruce Burnham, all right, good luck to you Saturday. We'll get you back on next Tuesday. Uh, you'll be coming out of this Montana game. You'll be heading uh, to a home game against Northern Arizona October 1st for people who want to get tickets. Bruce Barnum, Portland State football coach, thank you. Thanks. Appreciate it. Bye. There he is, Bruce Barnum. Didn't get himself in trouble this week. Last week he went off on uh, Providence Park and the Timbers and how uh, they've been locked out of the stadium. And I thought he was appropriate. I, I backed him on that one. Portland State should be playing at Providence Park. It was a great atmosphere on Saturday. Everybody was there is raving like, hey, it was a great football venue. It was a great event. Why, do, why don't they do that more? Why don't they do that more? Let Portland State back in the building. Come on, Timbers, Thorns. Want to be part of the community or not? Yogi Roth, Pac-12 Network, coming up next. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. You know what, Stephen? We should have. We probably should have started with a different song in this segment. You know what I'm saying? Like a Beatles song? Yeah, I should have. I should have been on that. that. That's on me. I thought about it. You know, here's what I would pick. Yogi Roth of the Pac-12 Networks is coming on. I would do this song. Yogi Roth, Pac-12 Network superstar. <laughs> oh, that was good. Didn't anticipate that one coming, bro. Yeah. It's been a great day so far. Yeah, yeah. give me an idea. Like, surfer, father, husband, Pac-12 Network analyst, Yogi Roth. How does, like, how do you celebrate a birthday? You know, I've got two requests every year on my birthday, and my wife knows it. Uh, one is the whole family go surfing, sunrise. So we did that, took everybody, baby, seven-year-old, the whole nine yards. We were in the ocean, and the sun was coming up. And then two, uh, I always ask uh, at least our seven-year-olds for a note. I want to see what he would write, what he would draw. <laughs> and I keep them all. You know, I'm that guy. Like, if you saw my office, it's full of, like, seven, six, five, four, three-year-old artwork. And now we got a two-year-old bringing it home from daycare or preschool or whatever it is. So, yeah, man, that's it. I'm simple. I don't need a cake. I don't need a party. I just want the ocean, <laughs> and I want some sort of memento. I love that. Uh, I I love that, and uh, you know that's good. That's good ritual. We should all do that. We should all have like two things. These are our two things. Be simple. Uh, that's a good way to start a birthday. Uh, hey, let me ask you before we get knee deep into George Klyovkov and the Pac-12 and all, all everything that's going on. Like, you know, you guys, it, it's it's come up numerous times in the summer that people like the content, the production of the Pac-12 networks. People can bellyache about, hey, it's not available here, not available there. There's nothing you can do about that. But what has that been like for you to kind of, the pride and the number of people that over the years who have contributed to making the Pac-12 network a, you know, a quality experience, uh, distribution aside? Yeah, oh, I'm most proud of this when I look at my professional career more than anything. You know, to be honest with you, like, over a decade now, um, there's not many things you can see from the very beginning. 
That's why I love like first year coaching staffs and people that get on those staffs. Like it doesn't happen very often in your career. Like you feel that euphoria, that excitement, the potential. Um, and then to be there for as long as we have, I, you know, on behalf of like Ted Robinson, my partner who's changed my life, Ashley Adamson, one of my best friends, Michael Molinari, I'd put his production skills up against anybody in college football. I'd put our crew up against the number one game in college football. I, I would. And that's not like an arrogant take. I just think that when you look at how we view the game, how we prep for the game, how we know three deep of every team, the storylines, um, I'm really proud of it because that's our job. You know, when we got the gig, it wasn't like, hey, you're going to go to a different conference every weekend. Like, I have empathy for people that do that because how can you really follow a league? Like, you follow the narratives, you follow the storylines. It's, you know, part of your lifeblood of what you do every day. But, you know, if you're covering games in the ACC, you can't know everything about Cal football and Arizona and all the things in between. And that's what our job is. So I, I always say to our crew before we call every game, one, like I hit the talk back and I say, let's go call the national championship. Let's call the Rose Bowl. Like we treat it like that. And then we take a ton of pride in, in taking you to storylines story that maybe you didn't know. And I think for us what's really fun is when, like Brock Heward gets our game afterwards, or when Mike Tirico is calling Notre Dame games, or Herbie or Reese Davis, like they'll call Ted or me in advance of the game. They're like, hey, I just watched the broadcast. Like, that was cool. Tell me more about this. Um, and, and I think that's been fun for us to, to have that responsibility and then show up and do it. And it's always nice to hear from people that do watch it. And what I love now, especially like our game Saturday, um, you can go to Fubo, you can go to Sling, like you can get it. You know, like it's not like it was in year one or year two, and you really it was, it was a hard time finding it if your cable provider didn't have it. Like, there's a way. So um, that's how I think we advance the story, and it's not perfect, but it's not like it's in the abyss and you can't watch it anymore. I asked George Skiavkov uh, in this podcast that Willner and I did with him this interview. You know, what happens to the Pac-12 networks? And you know, it sounds like he and the presidents and chancellors want this thing to exist beyond this media rights deal and that there's a chance it ends up with a streaming service or you know with with some kind of app that people have to pay for but it it looks like the Pac-12 network would would live on like what's the point in 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 killing it off um what does that mean to you like knowing that you know that people do see that the value in in what you guys are doing and and think that there's a platform for all these other sporting events that aren't football as well as the football yeah, well, I think, you know, there's a few things. Like, number one, I, I've i always, since day one, really appreciated the leadership from George Klyovkov. You know, he's a guy who sees the big picture, uh, right? Like, we're in the grander rights world, right? I, I didn't listen to the whole thing yet. I'm only a few minutes into your conversation. Uh, I look forward to finishing it up, man, because uh, he's a great dad and love what you and John are doing. Uh, but I think also, you look at the macro of, like, what's the job? Right? Like, and I love how Commissioner Klyovkov believes in the student-athlete experience. Right, regardless of sport, and I think all these athletes deserve to be celebrated. And I think when your game, you know, whether it's softball or an Olympic sport or something outside of the, you know, men's and women's basketball and college football, like you deserve to have a place for your game to be aired and people to, to watch you because you might be the best in the world at what you do. Like you might go win an Olympic gold or numerous ones at your respective sports. I love that regarding our conference and the history that it has stood on for a long time. And then regarding football, like, I love that when he shared that with you. Um, he shared that with us as well. Um, and cause I think that's how it should be. You know, our league should have its own network. Right? Our league should have a place to stand up and tell features on players, like, 
Alex Forsythe or Tanner McKee or, you know, the dozens that we've done over the last couple years. Uh, we should have the places and the platforms to elevate those stories so other networks can watch and learn from them. Like last year, I had Trent McDuffie on my podcast on the Pac-12 Networks, and then I got a call from ESPN and ABC saying, hey, we're going to do a feature on him. Thanks for doing that story because we didn't know about him and his brother and what he went through and when his brother lost his life. So I look at, like, our job is to elevate and help out other places to be aware of these guys' stories. So it helps them in the NFL. It helps them get a job. It helps them in phases of their life. It puts a smile on, you know, Cam Ward's dad when I had him on podcast. He's DMing me saying, man, that was awesome. I really I learned something about my son. I, I loved how he answered that. So those are the things that I think our job is to do. You know, it's, my, it's my job, 365, to know this league inside and out. And I love that there's going to be a home for it. Uh, it'll change. It'll be different. Uh, but I'll tell you, I'm excited, and, and I love that you know, Commissioner Kleofkoff and his staff, they've got a commitment to that, and they should, because I think that's the right thing for the sports within our league, especially the one that I love most in football. Yogi Roth, Pac-12 Networks analyst, is with us. It's his birthday today. This is how he's choosing to spend it. Uh, let's talk about the respect of this conference. 11-1 uh, in the Pacific Northwest, USC, UCLA undefeated. I, I expect the AP Top 25 poll to come out and see, you know, Washington State and Oregon State maybe somewhere between 20 and 25 in the poll, and it doesn't happen. Am I a homer? What is going on here? Why don't? Why doesn't this conference get the respect it deserves? Yeah, well, look, and I've said this on a couple different shows this week of, like, to the, all the voters, like, you know, hit me up. I'm here to help. You know, like, not going to be the guy that's going to, you know, cry about it and yell about it. I want to help. You know, and I say that because when I look at like Oklahoma State, they beat Central Michigan, who lost to South Alabama, which I covered that game this weekend against UCLA. They beat Arizona State in a tighter game than we thought. Arizona State no longer has their head coach. And they beat Arkansas Pine Bluff. Haven't really done a lot. Michigan State, in advance of the UW game, they did the same thing UW did. You know, beat up opponents that they should beat up. I can go down the list, Wake Forest. VMI, Vanderbilt, Liberty, one-point win over Liberty, that more impressive than what Washington State has done, what Oregon State has done? Like, no chance. So I say this. Like, I, I love the hype on college football as much as the next guy, and that's what the preseason poll is. Same thing with A&M, same thing with Miami. You know, but when we get through at least three games, you've got context around Oregon putting it on BYU who beat Baylor. How are not one of our teams higher than where Baylor or BYU is ranked right now when you look at the league? Or you have context on a Washington State win on the road, shutting out Wisconsin in one of the most challenging places in the country. How is that win not given more credence? Oregon State, their first two games are as respected of a group of five team as you're going to find if you want to just go on historicals. Then they beat the number four team in the country at their respected level in Montana State and, and smoked them over the weekend. Like they did everything they could. And normally you'd be like, ah, who cares about AP rankings? But I say this from – I'm on the group that presents the CFP committee on behalf of the PAC-12, along with our commissioner, Mert Hanks and company. And you hear things like a ranked win in week four, a ranked loss in week five. Like that thing comes up. Well, the ranking is often the AP. So I, I do think it has a little bit of an impact. And that's why I think it's fair to call it out and say, hey, what's going on here? Because now whether it's USC, I'm calling this weekend, or Oregon, if they win their game, it's not over a ranked team, and it should be. And vice versa, if Wazoo or Oregon State win, they jump to 22. 
Well, they should already be sitting somewhere around that and jump to 13, jump to 11, like should, especially if Oregon State beats a top 10 SC. So, so that's where I think it's fair to call out. So, no, I don't think you're being a homer. I think we're looking at a ranking system that is broken, right? It's part historical, Michigan. I understand that, right? And it's part reality, Kentucky. They deserve that. But I think that when I look at Arkansas, when I look at Oklahoma State, when I look at some of these teams that are ranked and they don't have a lot of quality wins, I said, well, what are we doing? Like, you got to give credit to the teams that win. So, so that's where my where my my issue is. And again, I'm not yelling. I'm just saying, hey, we're here to help. If you, if you don't watch the games, call you, call me, text us. Like, we'll help you out. Yogi Roth, Pac-12 Networks, with us. Oregon State, you mentioned them. They're going to get USC at home. Uh, I'm sad to say this. It might be the last time USC goes to Corvallis. Like, you know, I don't know if they'll go back there after they leave for the Big Ten Conference, and this might be it. Um, there have been some big games there. I think Oregon State fans would love nothing more than to send USC off with a loss. How do you see this game? How, you know, you'll be at this one, I think, and, you know, how, how is this game looking to you? Oh, it's a game of the day, man. It's awesome. A top 25 matchup, if you will. Uh, I can't wait to to call it on a bunch of fronts. I think one, uh, and we'll talk about this in the open, is that USC offensively is as elite as we've seen early on this season in college football, and especially what they've done in the first half of their games. Uh, you, you look at the first half of their games, and they scored a touchdown on 11 of their 14 drives. And for Oregon State, I think a big strength of their team is their back end. You know, I've often said, I, I don't know if Oregon State has a first-round pick, but I don't know if they have a weakness. I felt that at training camp, and I feel that way even now. And I can't wait to see the length of Rayshon Wright and Alex Austin, Jaden Grant, that, that entire back end. They've got so much experience. Play a lot of press man coverage, a lot of mano y mano. I got you. You got me. Let's, let's see how this thing shakes out down the field. What do the officials do? They let them play. They let a lot of contact happen. Like, I can't wait to watch that because I think if Oregon State can just survive the first quarter and that onslaught that I referenced, um, the big play, explosive play onslaught that SC's been able to do against everybody, they're going to be okay. Like, this game will go into the fourth quarter. And then on the flip side, I look at the offensive line. And, you know, there isn't a more respected offensive line coach, you know, in the country when you talk about Jim Halchick and what this group has done. You you have to talk about the enhanced deep ball out just a chance no one. I just had him on our podcast with Ted Robinson earlier today. There's a big focus of his going into his offseason, and you've proven to see it. If they can run the ball, set up the play-action pass, and not turn it over and survive the first quarter, like this is a team that's going to take it late, much like they did in the Utah game. Like If you can just give them a chance late, I do think that their home stadium will have an opportunity to be an advantage in, in what will be a unique environment. And what they can't do is – what they've done every week is they've had uncharacteristic drops, deep ball drops. Like they can't do those in this game. Like they're going to have to play extremely consistent and efficient football to be one of the top ten teams in America. And defensively, they're going to slow this high-powered attack down, which isn't easy. They got two of the best players in America, Jordan Addison and Caleb Williams. When I look at USC last year, Yogi, you saw it. Oregon State pushed them all around the Coliseum. Has anything changed? personnel-wise, on the offensive and defensive lines for USC? Oh, yeah. I mean, you just look at their play of the game last week with Solomon Bird, who's starting at Wyoming last year, um, number 51. You'll feel his presence. Um, 
I think scheme-wise, it's dramatically changed. I mean, it's like a one-gap scheme now. You'll see the movement from Alex Finch on the defensive front. You, know, you add to their front seven with a Shane Lee and an Eric Gentry, and these are linebackers that I think would play in a lot of places around the country. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a, it's a more physical group in the front seven. I think on the old line, we saw them play their best game of the year against Fresno State. This was kind of vintage Lincoln Riley when you study it of pulling offensive linemen, tight ends moving, a lot of cross motion. Some of the stuff that Oregon State has done at times that really confuse and cause hesitation by a defense. So it's offensive line, same personnel for the most part other than the left tackle than they had last year. Uh, defensive front seven, probably 50% different when you look at the players that are rotating in. Uh, but it's just a totally different scheme. And it's a totally different vibe. I mean, what Lincoln Riley has done is masterful to get players in this era to blindly trust. You know, I think Travis Dye talked about earlier this week of that's the most connected team he's ever been on. And, you know, that's saying something. He's been on some really talented and connected teams. Um, so I'm, I'm, I can't wait, man. It's, it's going to be fun in that regard. And to your point, Stanford ran the ball. Fresno State ran the ball. I think Oregon State will have their opportunities to run the ball. And, SC is going to know that they're going to go do that. So that, that, that's why I love it. I mean, this is it's early to make a statement like this, but I still feel it. Is that like it's going to have a vibe of a championship game. There's a ton of stakes on the field. You reference is it the last time. There's, there's other elements off the field. The stadium's kind of funky. I can't wait to get there. I saw it in spring, but never for a game. It's standing room only. It's going to be cool, man. It's going to be you know elements of what we love in college football. How does Oregon State win that game? If If you're building a case for them, uh, you know, beating Lincoln Riley and USC. Yeah, they're very capable of winning this game. Um, I, I think some of the things that we talked about, if I were them and you win the coin toss, I'd take the ball. And I say that, like, can you just eliminate a possession or two in the first half? Right? And if you don't, can you win, like, what is often coined the middle eight, the last four minutes of the second quarter, the first four minutes of the third quarter? Like, can you go two for one there? Can you get a late score, get the ball back, get an early one? Those are things I think you have to do against SC. You know, Time of possession is one thing, but possessions is the other thing. And I, I really believe they're going to have to you – know, they're going to want to have one or two more possessions in SC. So can you do it, whether it's through the middle eight, whether it's taking the ball, whether it's you know, the elapsing of the clock, running the ball. Um, I think those things are an example. I mean, they have to control the line of scrimmage. Uh, and I think they can. Like, I think I think they're going to move the ball. I mean, since year one, Jonathan Smith moved the ball pretty much against everybody they played, you know, for the most part. So I think they'll do that. And then on the backside, you know, you look at Stanford. It's 21-7. Stanford's inside the one. They're about to score. E.J. Smith fumbles. And you look up, and it's 38-14. You know, I called the Rice game. Rice moved the ball on SC, and you look up, and it's like they're up by 40. Like, whoa. Like, they just – that's what we used to do back in the day when I was at SC. It was like you would just score at will. And it was like, okay, you can play good football as an opponent, but if you don't score touchdowns, like, we're going to. And that's where this SC offense is going. I mean, they – bro, you, you watch Mario Williams play, and you say, whoa, find a more explosive player in this league. And then you say, oh, there's number three, Jordan Addison. <laughs> He's right there. I need a big-bodied wider. Okay, Brennan Rice. Hey, give me give me somebody out of the backfield that can just win a, in space. Really, Brown. He might be the most explosive guy they got. Oh, then Travis Dye. You know, one of the career highs in rushing in this league, right? Fifth most in Oregon history when you look at what he's done in his previous school. So he's got weapons, and I, I think Caleb is as special as he's touted to be. He's a he's a one percenter man. So it, I don't think it's like you need Herculean effort, 
to beat them, uh, but you have to play really efficient. You can't turn it over. You can't have drops, things of that nature. Yogi Roth, Pac-12 Networks, I will see you at the stadium. Happy birthday to you. Uh, let's catch up before the game. I look forward to it, brother. Stay safe. All right, there he is, birthday boy, Yogi Roth. Is it just me, Stephen, or when he's talking about USC, I want everyone to beat him. We'll talk about that coming up. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Coming up at the 4 o'clock hour, Anna will join us. We'll talk more about the Pac-12. George Kiyavkov, if you missed it, broke his silence. He had been silent essentially since July 29th at Pac-12 Media Day. Did an interview with John Wilner of the Bay Area News Group and myself last night. Happened right after this radio show. Kiyavkov, uh, at about 6.30 last night, said uh, he was willing to do the interview. We booted it up, and Wilner and I just peppered him. Peppered him with questions, asked him all the things I thought you would want to know about. We'll talk about it coming up in the 4 o'clock hour. In the meantime, our big splash. It is the one thing that you need to know. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. The big splash. Well, a fan was arrested for allegedly throwing a bottle at Cleveland Browns owner Jimmy Haslam on Sunday. Jeffrey Miller, 51, was arrested on complaints of assault, failure to comply with a lawful order, and disorderly conduct. Browns are planning to ban Miller from returning to First Energy Stadium. Uh, the NFL Network first reported that the fan would be banned. They got video of Haslam walking to the Browns' tunnel. Uh, just as the uh, Jets receiver, Garrett Wilson, scored the winning, winning touchdown. Bottle hit Haslam. He looked up to try to find the fan who threw it. Police later identified Miller as a suspect using stadium video surveillance. Act normal. Act right when you're in a stadium. Shouldn't be chanting things that you shouldn't be chanting. You shouldn't be throwing things you shouldn't be throwing. Do your parents need to come with you to the stadium? Four o'clock hour coming up. Leave it here. You got the bald face truth. <laughs> B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with a bald-faced truth. I don't think it's a good idea for a conference commissioner to go silent for a couple of few months especially at a time in which there is rampant anxiety, questions, destabilization, or instability in your own conference. I think it's a little dicey, but that's what George Klyovkov did. He went silent after his media day appearance on July 29th. I've talked a little bit on today's show about what the Pac-12 commissioner said in the podcast that was released this morning, Konzano and Wilner podcast, you can find it wherever you get a podcast. You know, you're kind of on the inside as a listener to this show, that the genesis of that podcast was Wilner coming on this show and us talking and us going, you know what? We have more things to talk about. 
Well, we interviewed George Klyovkov together. He talked about why he's been silent. He talked about the misinformation that's out there. He talked about the confidence he has in the 10 remaining members sticking together. We also talked about what's the right blend of a media rights deal. And UCLA came up. And by the way, what's the balance that the Pac-12 should be seeking when it comes to distribution and revenue and choosing its media partners? Anna's popped into the studio. Stephen and Sean are here as well. I want your input too as a listener. As you listen to this and questions or thoughts come up, feel free to call in. 503-417-7575. If you feel moved, if you feel like you're, you have a thought, a question, a follow-up, a thought about what George Klyovkov says, I want to hear it. I want to kick this around a little bit. Anna, you up for this? Yeah, let's do it. All right, first and foremost, let's start with the idea that, you know, he went silent after July 29th. He let everybody else talk, and a whole bunch of other people have talked. I asked him, it was my first question to him, why he went silent. Here he is. I promise, here he is. Yeah, I, I haven't really done media other than Football Media Day since June 30th and the announcement of UCLA and USC. And, and that is because we've been heads down trying to get our work done. You know, we've been very focused on our media rights deal. We're in the middle of that. And that's the highest priority for the schools, and that's why I should be spending my time on. I, I also don't believe in negotiating in the media, although that seems not to be the way everyone approaches it. But that's all right. Uh, I'd rather put our heads down, get our work done, and then share good news when we have it. It's, is he have a right? Is that the wise strategy? Is it the right strategy? Is it a mixed bag? I... I normally would say that it is unwise to go silent the way that he has and let everybody else fill in the blanks because that is what happens when there's an information vacuum. You get a lot of people throwing in conjecture, opinions, non-sourced information, and just rumor. And so the rumor mill kind of goes rampant, and he even acknowledged that, I think, in the interview. Like, hey, you know, things are said, and half the time they're not accurate. And I know what he's talking about because we've seen and heard a lot of that in the last few months. Like people in the media will just try to fill in the blanks. So I actually don't think it's necessarily a bad thing for him to have gone silent if indeed what he's working on is shoring up the alliance between the remaining members and trying to make sure that getting the carpet pulled out from under them as it did before doesn't happen again i i think it was unwise because it it became a like the brand of the conference was already battered under larry scott right and then usc ucla leave i think that he he certainly served his bosses by being quiet uh you know the pac-12 presidents and chancellors he served maybe the process that he's going through was probably not uh, harmed by him going quiet. But what about all these other stakeholders? Fans, alumni, media members, sponsors, season ticket holders, recruits. He, I think he left everybody else kind of in limbo. But what was he going to help by what, what, what could he have said in these last couple of months that would have helped the process instead of harming it if 
we take him at his word, which is that he's been hard at work trying to negotiate the best deal to benefit the member schools. Yeah, I believe he's been hard at work, and I believe that that process is benefits from him not going out and, and talking and being distracting. But I feel like there was a lot of damage that was done, and I think like there's more things to consider than just this media rights deal. The brand of the conference, the confidence that recruits have that the, you know this conference is staying together, uh, season ticket holders and, and other stakeholders, I think all sort of felt the ground beneath them vibrating mm -hmm. as this was all going on. And like it wasn't like he came out in this interview and announced a media rights deal. Right. Why, why couldn't this conversation have happened two weeks ago? Three weeks ago, a month ago, like I feel like he should have come out. I think I think the whole reason he did come out is he. I think he kindly kind of felt like he needed to say something. Yeah, he had been out of the game too long. Mm -hmm. I think yeah, otherwise there's, there's no reason he wasn't announcing anything. He, he didn't, you know, he even said at the beginning of the interview, like I don't have a big, I don't have a bunch of news to break here. You know, so what changed? Um, yeah, probably the pressure. I I, I do find that the. Some of the things that he said, he's obviously choosing his words pretty carefully. And I was very interested in the notion that he wants, you know, that distribution is a key priority for him. Okay. That it's not just about the money, that that's very important, but that the distribution, the wide distribution is a priority. All right, let's talk about that because I, there was kind of two questions that were asked to him about the deal. He said, you know, if the right deal is there, our partners will sign uh, the deal. I asked him what the right deal is. When, when you talk about the right deal, I, immediately I go to money. Is the money going to be there? Is it, are there other factors? What are, what are we talking about with the right grant of rights deal? Yeah, the, the uh, media rights deal that we were always contemplating, you know, in the 14 months that I've been on the job and started to think about what our next media rights deal should look like has always been a balance. And certainly revenue is at the top of the priority list, but uh, we have to also balance that against distribution, right? We really want our content to be available to any of our fans who want to see it. I've set a goal of um, you know, our content should be available on any piece of glass connected to the internet uh, as, as part of our next media rights negotiation. And, and then, and by the way, that might mean that you need to subscribe to a service. It doesn't mean you'll get it for free, but, but it, it has to be available everywhere. Uh, and then the last is figuring out a set of media rights deal or a deals or a deal that allows us to have a little bit more flexibility with respect to scheduling our games. And, that's primarily as a result of feedback I heard on our listening tour, you know, when I started where, um, you know, our, our campuses do not love six and 12 day picks and not knowing when their games are going to be or at what time or on what network won't be able to solve all of those issues. But I think this balance between um, revenue, exposure, you know, broad, broad distribution and some flexibility to allow us to really do a good job of promoting our schools and our uh, student athletes who put themselves in a good position late in the season to be considered for a Heisman Trophy or for a invitation to a postseason tournament or to the CFP. I, I think we need some more flexibility than we have in the agreements that, that I inherited. What do you hear him saying there? 
Uh, I'm most interested in the statement he made about any piece of glass that's connected to an internet should be able to see the games. Like, that, for some reason, maybe I'm over, you know, emphasizing that, but that statement stuck out to me. Because he's also, and the secondary thing he said well, was, well, you might have to subscribe to some kind of service to get that. Like, he's laying the groundwork, and he's trying to manage people's expectations on how they're going to view their favorite college teams. But isn't that what we've always said? We've always said we just want the opportunity to watch the team. Like, we'll pay a little yeah. bit extra as long as we can get it, where not everyone can get the Pac-12 network right now with what we got. And so I think that just puts it out there, like you said, it gives you at least the option to, if you want to watch your teams, you can now. Everybody that literally has the internet, has a glass or device, like you said, you can watch your team. Yeah, I think, I think too, you know, he hit on something there with kind of the six-day and the 12-day windows that I think is flying under the radar a little bit today. Because we don't get kickoff times for these games uh, you know, six days or 12 days apart, like in front of the game. And so a lot of families who are season ticket holders, they don't know. Anna, you're a planner. Yeah. You're the planner well, of our family. somebody has to be in our yeah. family. <laughs> Anna today pulled out the calendar and she said, it's in the calendar. And I said, I only look at the calendar when I come home and there's nobody home. And I go, where did everyone go? And then I look at the calendar and I go, oh, <laughs> this is where everybody is. Like, like for, for families, though, six days, 12 days, it's not enough to know when the kickoff time is. It creates problems for people who want season tickets. So on one hand, he's talking about, look, they want to chase the revenue, but they simultaneously know that the games need to be widely available. Uh, and then they also know that the partners, and I think this is a little bit of a pipe dream, want, like the schools themselves, want more control over what time the games are kicked off on. The only way you get to choose what time the games are kicked off at is if you go with a streaming service and it doesn't matter when your game kicks off because if you're with a linear provider like ESPN or Fox or ABC, there's a schedule they have to keep. And they go, hey, we only have the window, 730 window. That's the only window we have for you, Pac-12. But if you're Apple or Amazon, I think they could say, hey, the game could kick off at 2 p.m. doesn't matter. So in his own way, even though what he's saying is he doesn't really want to negotiate this deal in public, I think even by virtue that he's mentioning that as a factor, isn't that kind of uh, nudging, you know, the traditional broadcasting groups like Fox and ESPN to be like, hey, we need some flexibility on kickoff times. Well, let me let me let you hear this, because this is where we started to drill down on the balance between a linear provider and a streaming service. Here's George Klyovkov, Pac-12 commissioner. You know, the glow of ESPN and the in the propaganda that, that comes with a partnership with ESPN, it's uh, it's real. I mean, we watch it with the SEC. We've seen it in, a, in other cases with stories over the years. How do you balance that? You talked about that balance between cash and revenue and exposure. Um, Amazon last week with that, you know, it was it, it, there was a lot of buzz around their NFL Amazon Prime broadcast. We watched MLS go all in with Apple. Is an all-in deal something you're thinking and talking about, or is is there always going to be a need to blend, or in this era, is there going to be a need to blend a linear provider or a traditional provider with maybe something a little more forward-thinking and innovative? I, I think you're thinking about it exactly the right way, which is what is that balance? I, I'm, I'm not going to project where we end up one way or the other. 
Um, but but you're thinking about it exactly the right way as, as that being a balancing act. And that's the way we're thinking about it. And until we're in a position where we have the opportunity to understand what all of our potential partners want to do with our content, what they're willing to pay for it, and what flexibility they'll give us, I can't answer that question. And at the end of the day, I don't get to make that decision, right? I, I and the rest of the group that's working on this at the conference get the best deals we can. We make recommendations to the board, but it'll be the presidents and chancellors who eventually make a decision about how we're distributed. But I don't know. Overall, I, I'm just a little concerned, uh, to be honest. When I hear him talking, I'm talking about kind of an overarching, do I have confidence in what is happening? And I'm not sure that that interview bolstered my confidence in, in, in the future for the Pac-12, to be honest with you. How so? Because, like, I just think, you know, in another part of the interview, he talks about how, um, you know, he's taking the people at the universities at their word that, you know, that they're all going to stick together, that he sounds very confident that the remaining 10 are going to stick together. And, like, my response to that is, but we took you know, UCLA and USC at their word as well, and that didn't work out so well. Let me play that clip. It's not playing. Let's go to commercial break. We'll play it when we come back. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. We're talking a little bit about George Klyovkov, the Pac-12 commissioner. Early in the show, I played a clip. Uh, Anna didn't hear it, so I'm going to replay it again. But I played a clip uh, where Klyovkov's talking about the misinformation that is out there. You, you probably saw or heard the Andrew Marchand report. New York Post media reporter said on his podcast last week that ESPN and Pac-12 were hundreds of millions of dollars apart. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. <laughs> uh, what's your reaction to that? Well, listen, I, you know, since June 30th, we've heard a chorus of, you know, uh, things reported through the media, almost always not attributable to an individual, uh, you know, but reported that are, in my estimation, attempts to destabilize our conference. And, you know, for the first couple of weeks that uh, it had an effect and everybody was, you know, kind of vibrating against the result of some of this nonsense. Uh, at, at this point, our 10 schools are completely focused on the future and being together and confident in each other and um it, it's now almost a running joke at our board meetings what you know what's what's the latest nonsense that someone has thrown against the wall and see seeing whether or not someone will report on that front people are nervous about oregon and washington some of those back channel reports um and then also i've been hyper focused on you know is this conference galvanized talking to athletic directors but from your standpoint are you confident that all 10 schools will sign a grant of rights agreement? I think the 10 schools will sign a grant of rights agreement if we put the right agreement in front of them, which is why we're spending so much time focused on getting an agreement that will allow all of our schools not just to compete but to thrive. The Big 12 situation, you know, you mentioned that at Media Day. Uh, I, be I believe you said to CBS Sports that you guaranteed that none of the Pac-12 schools 
would be going to the Big 12. Do you is that still the case? Yes, that's still the case. Because what I've been wondering with that aspect of it is, like, if you're if you're a Pac-12 school, you know, Arizona's or Utah, or Colorado, right, and you see what's going on with Oregon and Washington, and you're not sure that they're how long they're going to be in the conference, and there you got the Big 12 as what would seem to be a stable landing spot, right? Because the Big 12 has already been plucked from its, you know, of its top brands. That's what I'm really curious about is why would, why are you confident that those four corner schools are not going to jump? Why, why do you feel like they are committed to the conference? Well, I, you know, I talk to our presidents and chancellors and athletic directors all the time. And we have conversations about this and everyone has committed to working together to get a great grant of rights following a good media rights deal. And I, I take people at their word. There it is. Takes people at their word. Anna, that's what you wanted to hear. That That's kind of what I wanted to hear. But I also kind of want to hear more about what taking people at their word means like is there anything legal <laughs> signed is there anything on paper well, what, but well, what can he do let me put let me defend george Kalofkov if i can for a second here put myself in his wingtips for a day <laughs> um look what can he do if the president at ucla or the the chancellor at ucla or the president at usc carol carolyn fult what what can he do if she looks him in the eye and says we're committed and then goes behind his back to the Big Ten. At, on some level, you have to take people at their word, and then it, when they hose you, you go, okay, I'm not dealing with you anymore. Yeah, yeah, like, I, I you know, get that. Otherwise, get you're, that. otherwise, what's the alternative? I mean, you're walking the around al the distracted from your real job. The alternative, potentially, is getting something in writing that says, like, hey. That's the grant of rights that he's working on. Yeah. Like, okay. literally, that's the contract that he talks about working on, the media rights deal and the yes. grant of rights. So if, for people who don't know, you have two different documents that are going on here. You have a media rights deal with ESPN and whatever providers that they sign with. You have a grant of rights deal that all the remaining members sign. That's a contract mm -hmm. that everybody signs. They're all under contract right now right. with the Pac-12, including USC and UCLA. The problem is the grant of rights which basically they all sign, so they just go to the conference and say, look, collectively, you have the right to sell our media rights. Right. That's the grant of rights. That expires in July of 2024. That's why USC and UCLA are leaving, not now, not tomorrow, not yesterday, but they can't leave until the summer of 24 because that's when the grant of rights is up. So he, like, I don't know what else he can do. I get what he's saying, yeah. and, I, and I share your discomfort, but I'm not really sure what he can do there. I understand. I know. I guess I just wish that there was there was more teeth to it or there's some kind of penalty if anybody else goes the way of USC or UCLA. But I also understand, uh, you know, capitalism uh, in philosophy that schools are going to go where they believe it's best for them. And if revenue is the driver, uh, then I get it. That said... I don't blame anybody who's going, I'm a little nervous about this. Okay, so <laughs> here's what he said about UCLA. This is interesting. This got some attention today nationally as people are going, hold on here. We all know the UC Regents are meeting this week to discuss UCLA and whether or not UCLA will be allowed 
to stick to their commitment that they made to the Big Ten. Here's George Klyovkov, Pac-12 commissioner, answering some questions on that front. Media day, you left. You seem to leave the door open to the possibility that maybe UCLA would not end up in the Big Ten in two years. What is your view of, of UCLA's situation right now? I know there's a, a UC Regents meeting coming up this week, another one. You think the Bruins may end up staying in the Pac-12? Uh, I'm not going to make a prediction of that, but what I would say is that we, we welcome the ongoing review of UCLA's decision by the UC Board of Regents, um, particularly in light of the fact that the initial decision was made, we understand, without consultation with student-athletes, faculty, alumni, student-athletes, families, Cal Berkeley, or the Board of Regents, and some other key stakeholders. Um, you know, we also saw the meeting that the Board of Regents had last month, and we're kind of enlightened, and particularly because the Board of Regents' conclusion by their general counsel that was testifying as part of that hearing was that they have the right to overturn the decision uh, if they believe that doing so is warranted. And, you know, I, I, I look at that decision, and um, there's a couple of key reasons why we think that um, overturning the decision would not be a bad idea. I think... You know, there's a significant impact on student-athlete physical and mental well-being, which affects both academics and athletics, uh, in having to travel across two or three time zones for almost all of your conference games. We think it creates hardship for the families of UCLA student-athletes and the UCLA alumni who want to attend conference games. Um, we, we, we've kind of done back-of-the-envelope calculations on the negative impact on UCLA expenses travel expenses and just expenses for coaching salaries and other things just to get to the average Big Ten athletic budget. And, um, you know, we, we think that uh, the incremental money they're going to receive from the Big Ten media rights deal will be more than 100% offset by additional expenses. So you end up taking that money that you earn and it goes to airline and charter companies and coaches and administrators. It doesn't go to supporting the student athletes. Um, and obviously, there's the negative impact on on Cal Berkeley that the Cal regents, I'm sure, will take into account when they're considering this. Um, but again, out, outside our control, um, that that will be a decision of the of the regents. There it is, George Klyovkov. What's he doing there? He's playing games, isn't he? I think uh, he's lobbying. Yeah. I think he that may be the one of the key reasons that he is talking right now. Because I think he's trying to drum up support for for UCLA leaving the conference uh, to be denied yeah. by the Regents. Yeah, Feel I mean that was very that was a very political statement. He's obviously advocating on behalf of student athletes who would be negatively impacted. But I'm really curious about your take on his use of the word incremental. Is that, I mean, his whole back-of-the-envelope calculations, is it really, like, incremental, the the financial gain that UCLA stands to obtain by leaving well, versus the cost of traveling across time zones? Uh, look, I, I, I have reached out to UCLA because I want, I want to see their math. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, we get his math, we get yeah. someone else's math. But Is their envelope bigger? A lot of times when you when you do these deals, people are using different math. Right. Right. And we were at curriculum night the other night and the teacher said, you remember the old way you used to add? And I was like, there's another way like, you know, so maybe 
Maybe George Klyovkov's using new math. I don't know. But here's the deal. Like, it's there's about 30, conservatively, about $30 million more in it for UCLA. Let's just use conservative numbers. Okay. There's $30 million there. Yes. A year. Yes. So George Klyovkov is saying that UCLA is going to spend more than $30 million more trying to keep up with the Joneses in the Big Ten right? because they're spending more money. Those athletic departments at Ohio State, Michigan, right. and other places are spending more money. So you have larger overall expenses uh, trying to stay uh, competitive in the Big Ten. Yeah. But he's also saying the travel, not just for football, the travel for all your sports is going to cannibalize all of that revenue. He thinks 100% of it. Like he actually said later in that interview – that that he has no doubt that they're going to they would have been better off financially staying in the Pac-12. Now, if I'm on the board of regents in the University of California system, that perks my ears up. Totally. Because I'm going, yeah. wait a minute, wait a minute. They made a deal that was not financially better for them. Like they the whole argument in the initial meeting was this was a financial no-brainer for yes. us. Yes. And Klyovkov's saying it's not a no-brainer. I don't know that I believe him. I would love to see his calculations. But I do think that he's right when he's talking about kind of the travel, like in other sports, not just football. In other sports, you're going to have to go two and three time zones. It means you not only have chartered travel, it means that you're spending the night there. You're staying over extra nights. We all know the Blazers tried to go in the cheap with their broadcast because, what, it was going to save them a few hundred thousand dollars? I was surprised it was a few hundred thousand dollars. Like, I was like, that's a lot of money. But... I wonder from the standpoint of UCLA, like how do you get to $30 million other than unless George Klyovkov's going, because he made a comment there, like the average Big Ten athletic department, he said that. Like, So I think he's not even looking at UCLA's current projections. He's mm -hmm. saying, look, look, this is what Ohio State and Penn State and Michigan spend. You know, you're going to have to spend that amount of money to stay on par with them. Plus, you're going to have all these other sports traveling all week long i think he's definitely lobbying there so as we're sitting here trying to figure out why has he stayed quiet and why is he talking now i think we're kind of stumbling into the idea here that he's trying to get on record and sound the public drum prior to this regents meeting Prob maybe maybe, maybe yeah. that's part of it there yeah. might be more coming up uh, i'll play Another clip from George Klyovkov that caught my attention. I want your feedback as well as a listener. Is this too inside baseball? Do you just want to be talking about the college football games? Should we be saying, like, who's the best college football player in America right now through three weeks? Should we be having that conversation? Or is this a productive and interesting conversation for you? 503-417-7575. To the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Is it possible that George Kliavka, the Pac 12 commissioner's plan, and the reason why he did the podcast interview with John Wilder and I, is his plan to force UCLA back into the fold, pave the way, make it uh, easier? He's uh, certainly using some propaganda there in saying that UCLA is not financially better off going to the Big Ten Conference. Um, 
And that's being graded nationally by people going, huh? Like, let's see the numbers. I think UCLA and the LA Times will probably come back out with some kind of financial impact story in the next 24 to 48 hours. Keep an eye on that. But here's a wild theory that I that crossed my mind yesterday as he made that comment. I thought to myself, like we have a, we have for a long time talked about expansion and realignment and how there aren't great options for the Pac-12. The Pacific time zone just doesn't have great options. Fresno State, Boise State, UNLV, San Diego State, SMU. We've talked about all this, and what I keep coming back to is, gosh, San Diego State's really interesting, but there's not a second school. That's why I keep mentioning UNLV or SMU, and they're not perfect. They're, they're problematic at best. Is, the, is, the, is it possible that Klyovkov's plan is to try to force UCLA back into the fold? Because he's not talking about USC, even though they're doing the same math, so to speak. Force UCLA back into the fold. And then replace USC with San Diego State. How does that strike you guys? Yeah, I mean, it makes sense, right? You want to get back into California. I think if you're trying to get back into, into California, San Diego State is the option, right? And so, uh, you know, you you lose out on USC and UCLA, obviously, but you get back down to Southern California. I think that's the way to go if you're looking to add teams. And I've always talked about this. Like, I think the other option, and I think for me it's pretty obvious, and is UNLV. UNLV is the one team I would want to get as well. Being in Vegas, I think the Pac-12 then can own just Las Vegas, and I think you can get teams to come out there and play those non-conference games. So, you know, if yeah. I'm looking to add teams, I think it's the Pac-12. It's it's San Diego State. It's UNLV. But what if they could force UCLA to come back? What if the Board of Regents say to UCLA, "Hey, look, uh, we don't like the math either, and we're not letting you out of this." I mean, Klyovkov did say that one of the takeaways he had from the Board of Regents meetings in the past was that they do have the authority to block UCLA from leaving the conference. Now, I'm not sure I believe it. Like, I, I really need to see that one to believe it. But it's interesting because if you can retain UCLA, you add San Diego State. Now, if you're going to add UNLV, you add UNLV and SMU. I mean, is the Pac-12 now the Pac-14? With UNLV, SMU, San Diego State, and UCLA, the four teams that you're adding to the remaining ten, I think it's a good theory uh, that you know he part of why he wanted to do the interview was to try to make some noise about the UCLA front and you know make that a big story because one of the biggest uh, you know sub stories of that interview that I've seen floating around is uh, you know this UCLA question and you know part of his response saying it's not quite over it's not quite over so i think it's a good theory my pushback on schools like um schools like unlv schools like smu even schools like fresno state just how what sports are they very good at you know fresno state's really good football team but you know i would i would argue they're not they haven't really succeeded in other sports and then unlv and smu like you know if we're just not thinking about money for thinking about how good are they, how, you know, how, how nationally relevant are they? What sports are UNLV and SMU good at? Yeah, but it's like, you know, I get what you're saying. And I think a lot of fans go to that, like, Hey, what are you good at? What have you done want in? You know, it's the same calculus that the big 10 used in adding Rutgers and adding Maryland, you know, Rutgers isn't good at anything. Rowing probably. Something like that. Archery. I don't know. Uh, But, what Rutgers offers is the New York media, the market. media market. It's all so about the media it's market. It's all about the media market. Nobody cares. It, and here's what the presidents and chancellors 
you know, there's two things that matter, and none of them have to do with success on the field. <laughs> One is your media market. How many TV households do you have? And if you have enough, the part two doesn't matter, okay? So number one is that that media market thing. Number two is the presidents and chancellors, they're academics. There's, they're a little snobby. And so for them, the academics do matter a little bit to a certain extent. As we have seen with the Big Ten, the Big Ten likes to say, hey, we're this great AAU uh, you know, organization. But when Nebraska was available, they went, eh, we'll make an exception. You know, it's so, you know, they'll make exceptions, but they want to feel good about it mostly. So here's, UNLV does fit the academics because they have a medical school. They, you know, the, the presidents and chancellors in the Pac-12 would go, eh, okay, we'll take UNLV. <laughs> they're not going to feel the same about Fresno State or Boise State. Mm-hmm. They're gonna. I think they're gonna look down their nose a little bit at those universities. They'd feel good about SMU because they can look at SMU and go, "Oh, that's a prestigious. You know, they got a great academic reputation." Do you think that those schools like UNLV and SMU, if they were to get in the Pac-12, could they get better at sports? Would they start recruiting better? Would people start caring about them more? Do you think that they could actually get good at some of these sports that we're talking about? They'd have to. Otherwise, they, I mean, look to give you an idea. People think of Boise State as like a pretty good mid-major, right? A program historically pretty good. Boise State's media contract this year pays them $5.5 million. That's it. That's what Boise State gets. Oregon State will line up against them, as they did in the opener, getting about 30 to $32 million. They're playing each other. So if I am UNLV or Fresno State or whoever coming into the conference – you're probably not going to get a full media share right out of the gate. That's why the Pac-12 is going to invite you. They're going to invite you going, look, we're going to give you 15 in year one. We'll give you 20 in year two. We'll escalate you up to a full share by year five. But by year five, you would hope UNLV, Boise State, Fresno State, whoever's coming in, San Diego State, is investing that 30, what will be about 34 to $40 million a year in media rights money. You're hoping they are investing some of that in athletics because guess what? The winners in the Pac-12 are going to be doing that. Oregon's going to be doing it. Utah's going to be doing it. Washington's going to be doing it. And if you don't do it, you're going to get your butt kicked. Do you think there's any chance when we talk about expansion, if UCLA were to stay and the Pac-12's at 11 teams and they only get one, if they get UCLA back, they don't necessarily need San Diego State and they would bypass them and just go with a UNLV or someone else like that? The, the one issue that it creates, I mean, I'm in favor of adding one because I don't see a second good option you know, like the, it, there's a shortage of options. But what I've been told by people in the media industry and the t- TV industry is that the Pac-12 has to replace that inventory that's lost. USC and UCLA are leaving. Those are games that they would play that they you, you sell to your partners that you no longer have. So you have to replace that divot. You have to replace that lost inventory. So I do think they'll probably try to add at least two. And if they get UCLA back, at least one. But they may go to 14 or 16. That's why the Big Ten and the Big 12 are jumping up and going, hey, we need 16 teams because it's extra inventory to sell to Fox, to sell to CBS, to sell to NBC. It's really uh, – it's just a numbers game. Hey, we got more games. Let's create more product here. Uh, you know, if you're willing to pay for it, we'll create more product. And, and if you have the right media markets, you can really sell that product. And that's why the Big Ten looked over at that L.A. market and went, we'll take those two schools – because we can sell those things, and we can sell them at a rate that increases our media value. 
Yeah, I mean, when you look at the DMA, the designated market areas for Las Vegas, Las Vegas is at 40. This is out of like 201 designated media markets. So think about like Glendive, Montana being around 201, New York being one. And so Las Vegas at 40 is you're getting into kind of a smaller market mentality. But what I do like about UNLV in Las Vegas is the growth, is the potential in Vegas because I would foresee that with the number of people that are exiting California, moving to Vegas, and the growth that we're seeing in that city and in, in the suburbs of that city, that, that that will only continue in the next couple of decades or so. San Diego State being at, at DMA 28, I mean, losing UCLA and USC was so painful because you've got two number two market schools 5.7 million tv households i mean that's a huge loss so try so trying to like fill that hole with market 28 in san diego 1.1 million tv households right it's okay but it's not great and it's not ideal so the ideal world would be to (laughs) force ucla to stay in the conference unwillingly against their will how much fun would that be yeah Joyful. Oh, no, no, no. You're not going anywhere. Tag in UNLV and uh, hope for the health of the conference in the next 20 years. Meanwhile, look at Boise, Idaho. You know, people in Boise who are listening to the show, I love Boise, but 517,000 households in the entire state of Idaho. Okay? We're not even talking like, you know, the Portland metropolitan market. Oregon and Oregon State get credit for Portland. They get credit for Salem. They get credit for everything. It's about 1.2 million households, okay? Boise, you you don't have a TV argument here, and that's the problem with Boise. Neither does Fresno. Fresno's only argument is if you look at Central California and you really are generous with them. Yeah. It is Spread a, your arms wide. You get got, wide. Yeah, if you just give them everything and you just kind of... Fingertip to fingertip. Yeah, you just... there. You know, there's a large swath of ge- geography. Yeah. And so I think you can sell a TV partner on the idea that you're in California. But the best case scenario, let's face it, you got the Bay Area with Stanford and Cal. You got Seattle with the Huskies. You got Phoenix with Arizona State, Okay. You need you need Southern California, and I think the Pac-12 knows that it's probably a Hail Mary at this point, but I think the Pac-12 knows. Anna, you and I left Pac-12 Media Day. We were leaving the morning after. We had breakfast. We talked about UCLA. We talked about yeah. would the Pac-12 – I said this to you over breakfast. I said it felt to me like George Klyovkov on Pac-12 Media Day was – holding out some kind of pipe dream hope about UCLA. I even wrote something that morning after right. we had breakfast because I was like, I feel like he's leaving the door open here mm-hmm. for some reason. Yeah. So maybe it does explain why he came out and talked. Like maybe his whole thing was, I'll talk to these two bozos and do this interview, <laughs> this podcast, but in there I'm going to drop in that there's no way this, this uh, works for UCLA financially. Can he sell that to the UC Regents? I don't know. And here's the other complicating factor. The, the Big Ten won't be happy if UCLA tries to back out. Have they signed anything? You know, have they given their driver's license over? <laughs> you know, the, the AD at UCLA, Martin German? Insta- I mean, that's the thing is, like, will UCLA wind up facing some kind of breach of contract 
if this all plays out and the regents go, nope, you can't leave. It's not beneficial for student athletes. It's not beneficial to the system. You know, how much is already, how far down the road are they already with that? And would they be in some legal hot water? Martin Jarman, the AD at UCLA, changing his address right now to like, you know, somewhere in the Midwest, you know, going, <laughs> hey, I live there, you know, I'm working there. Uh, it, it, and I get why UCLA, UCLA says only about finances. It'll be really interesting because my follow-up question to George Kiyovkov in the podcast, and I really encourage you to listen to the whole thing. If you're making a drive, it's a great listen on your drive or whatnot. But my follow-up question to him was, did you ask your media partners to, to model a media rights valuation for you? Because like, they're talking to ESPN, they're talking to Apple, they're talking to Amazon. They're saying, okay, here are our 10 members, and give us a value on that. What will you pay for this? Did you ask him to model with UCLA included? Yeah, what did he say to that? He said yes. Oh, okay. He said they did. Okay. So they're, they're not only leaving the door open, I think they're kind of – hoping UCLA comes back. They're not just hoping, they're they're kind of nudging. Like he's politically nudging publicly for this to happen. I feel because yeah. if we're the jury, if the public is the jury here and we're not because we have no power over what happens here, but he's just trying to plant reasonable doubt in our minds that this move for UCLA was beneficial in the end. I had a lawmaker in the state of Oregon uh, and in the state of Washington, two lawmakers reached out to me this morning, and one of them sent me a note. said, look at the total situation. The governor in California is pissed off that he was not told about this. It was a holiday weekend that UCLA bolted on. I don't know why that matters. He says, the most powerful regent is a California guy. The regents have said they can reverse this decision. It's a harder playoff path for UCLA. The money per Klyovkov doesn't pencil out. And uh, there's a potential pen penalty or subsidy that UCLA would have to pay Cal as they're leaving. The regents could do that. You tack on Olympic sports being DOA in the Big Ten footprint. Like, you can't go and have these athletes playing over there. Student-athlete welfare. And by the way, if you're UCLA, you have a chance to get out of the shadow of USC. Like, if you sell that to the regents, do they buy it? Now, I'm still skeptical. I see a mountain of evidence here that the regents could latch on to. I'm still skeptical, and I don't know why. Probably because I still think money talks and trumps all this stuff. Leave it here. you got the BFT. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. It was picture day at our kids' school today. How'd they do, Anna? I don't know. The proof's going to be in the pudding. I don't know. I, I asked them what they smiled like. They both gave, like, these Mona Lisa no-teeth smiles. That's all right. Nothing wrong with that. No, you nothing know? wrong with that. Nothing wrong, you know. <laughs> let, them, let them have their own smile. Why do we all have to have this big grin, like, you know? <laughs> I'm a little worried because the younger one, her pic I was like, when did picture day happen for you? Was it before recess, after lunch? You know, how much damage was done before the actual picture was taken? She's like, oh, it was after lunch. Do you think the moms are way more into this, yes. Stephen? Are the moms way more into picture day? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I mean, my wife, she, she's into it. I think she already has the outfit picked out. 
I have nothing to do with it. My job is to make sure he's wearing it on picture day. <laughs> yeah, don't screw that up. I had that job this morning, mm-hmm. and I was like, uh, I said, uh, what kind? Of, what is she wearing? And you said it was, it was on le- on the rail. Yeah, ready to go. Out. It's set out because yeah. the last thing I want is like an eleventh hour rushing around the Just house. Let them wear what they want in the morning. Let though. them wear what they want on picture day. I let them wear what they want. I just wanted to make sure what they wanted was actually available and not buried mm. at the bottom of a dirty laundry you basket. You wanted to make sure what they wanted is what you wanted. <laughs> That's that it. too. Yeah. That's it. I, I get it. Got them dressed up <laughs> like dolls. That's what happens over here. All right. We'll see how the picture day pictures come out. Uh, in the five o'clock hour, the happy hour coming up, we will shift gears. We're going to have some fun. The five at five is going to lead us off. Whole bunch ahead. We're going to turn the focus to USC, Oregon State, Washington State, Oregon. Bunch of Pac-12 games coming up this week that matter. Plus, Blazers Media Day on the horizon. The bald-faced truth continues with the happy hour after the break. Leave it right here. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. I don't remember school pictures. I don't remember picture day being a big deal. I don't remember my mom saying, hey, make sure you wear this. I'm pretty sure I wore like a 49ers jersey or a football jersey almost every year when we had picture day. <laughs> you were that kid. I was that kid. I had a number 11 49ers jersey because back in the day they didn't have like they they didn't ha- they didn't sell a Joe Montana jersey in the JC Penney's catalog. <laughs> and that's how I Wait, dressed so my Who was 11? I don't know. Just, 11 was just, the number that they all, you could get any team you wanted uh-huh. in that JC Penney catalog and the, the beautiful thing about that catalog is you actually went to the JC Penney's department store. Uh-huh. And they had a catalog there. Okay? <laughs> they didn't actually have the... <laughs> Tell me more. They didn't have the jerseys of all, at the time, 28 teams. Mm-hmm. That's all I had to deal with. Sean, the NFL had 28 teams once upon a time. And so, but they had a catalog inside the J.C. Penney store. Okay. So you, you drove over to the store with your parents... And you went into the store and you walked by all the jeans and the shoes and the purses and yeah. the ties. Yeah. And you came to a like a round circular table that looked a lot suspiciously like a bar tabletop. Uh-huh. And then they had a big giant catalog on it. Yeah. And they had pieces of paper there. And you look into the catalog and you flip through the pages of the catalog. Let me just yeah. mimic that. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Flip through okay, the pages. Foley sound happening now. Good, yeah, and good, then, good. and then, and then, they would have the jerseys. There would you'd get to the jersey page. Yeah, and they had all twenty-eight teams, but they only had like the number eleven, or like the number eighty-eight. Okay, <laughs> of every jersey team, so you could get the Rams, you could get the Steelers, yeah. you could get. And I I bring up the Rams and the Steelers because they were kind of good around 1979, 1980. Yeah, so those were popular. Those were popular because they played in the Super Bowl. Well, they were the two teams that, like, their jerseys were at the top. They had bigger pictures. And then if you wanted the 49ers or any other team, you had to order, like, number 23, and then you pick the size. Yeah. And then you write it down on the pieces of paper, Uh and you give it to the clerk, and they charge you for it. And you don't leave the store with a jersey. 
Okay, oh. this, is, this is not Amazon. This was not even like... What? Then you have to go home? You go home, you wait. wait for You it? wait a couple weeks, and the jersey comes in the mail. This is... <laughs> This is what Jeff, young Jeff Bezos walked into a J.C. Penney's once upon a time, and he said, there's got to be a better way. I could make this process a little better. Now, young John Canzano could have had that idea for yeah. Amazon yeah. while standing at J.C. Penney or standing by my mailbox waiting patiently for that Niners jersey to show up. Yeah, but think about the character you built waiting for that thing to show up. I'll right? tell you what, once I got it, yeah, I never took it off. Now these damn kids, you know, they wait, what, 24, 48 hours? No, yeah. This stuff just this shows up on the doorstep. Yeah, the 8-year-old this morning, she says, Dad, can I see your phone? <laughs> she looks, she goes to the Amazon app, she goes into the orders, and she looks and sees, she wants to know what time... The order's coming today. She's tracking it. And I'm going, you know what? I, I didn't tell her the story. So the JCPenney store was replaced by, there was two other stores. You may have had a different name for this kind of store, but it was a catalog store. Yeah. Uh, we had Best, mm -hmm. not Best Buy, but Best. Yeah. And Best, you go in and you order at Best. You get it the same day. comes down a conveyor belt. It's like a warehouse store. Yeah. And then there was another store called Consumer Merchandise or something like that. Very aptly Some named. flashy name. <laughs> yeah. Prestige. <laughs> you know. But uh, at least you get the product the same day. Yeah. But I remember waiting for that damn jersey uh -huh. for a long time. Yeah. But I was so happy when it came. See? I do think there's something to the instant gratification that, you know, we all have today yeah. in society. Nobody yeah. likes to wait for anything. I think we were better off waiting. Yeah. You know? Yeah. How does that strike you guys? Patience. Sean, Stephen, do you ever have to wait for something you ordered online? I mean, more than like a day? Not really. <laughs> right? Like, that's it's the beauty of Amazon Prime. It ruins you. It does. And my kids are the same way. Like, my oldest, he, you know, um, my parents ordered him a toy offline. And they're like, yeah, it's supposed to come in anytime. And it could be 10 p.m. at night. He's like... 10 p.m. and I have to wait all the way till the next day? Jeez. <laughs> just let them stay up till 10. Yeah. They don't know. They, they, don't, they don't know don't the pain. Know. Yeah, they don't know the pain and suffering that we went through. Do you guys know what Battle Creek, Michigan signifies? <laughs> Is that where the CD people were headquartered? No. Good guess, though. You know, those uh, no. CD programs? Battle Creek, Michigan was where all the cereal companies were headquartered for some <laughs> reason. You know? It's like people who don't live in the state of Oregon. I've had friends go, what's Beaverton like? <laughs> they think it's a magical place, and yeah. it is magical if you live in Beaverton. I'm not knocking you here, but they only know that Nike is headquartered in Beaverton. Yeah. So they think of it like it's the land of Oz. Like, <laughs> oh, man, it must just be swoosh and tartan tracks, and the sidewalks are made of the same material that the Olympic tracks are made from. And No, I, I'm like, that's just Nike's just headquartered there. <laughs> but Battle Creek, Michigan is where the cereal companies are. So anytime as a kid you had to send away for something. Yeah. You were sending away to the beautiful, magical place called Battle Creek, Michigan. Now, I've never been... <laughs> like General Mills must yeah. be headquartered. Yeah, for sure. Okay. No doubt. Anna, you did a story one time. You went to you went to North Dakota because we you we went through a drive-thru. Yeah. We went through a McDonald's drive-thru. This is a good story. We went through a McDonald's drive-thru, and I told you, as we're in the drive-thru, the lady I'm talking to, I said, she doesn't. she's not at the restaurant. She's She's at her house. Sound like she's in her bathroom. That was an astute observation. Yeah, I was like, that lady 
is not inside this McDonald's. And we got up to the window and I said, hey, the lady that I just talked to, where is she? And the person said, I don't know. She ain't here. And I told you about it. And you, your news director at your TV station said, that's a hell of a story. And you went where? Fargo, North Dakota. I don't know how I convinced my news director to let me travel to Fargo, North Dakota for this story with a photographer, but we did it. McDonald's was, uh, and I believe they're still doing it. Uh, they were having basically like housewives sitting in their bathrobes in their homes taking your to go like your drive through order because that was at the advent of voice over IP technology. So McDonald's had figured out that they could cut their labor costs by having, you know, like really housewives in North Dakota take your drive through order and then punch it into the computer. And that information was being transmitted back to, you know, said McDonald's in Portland suburb so that the people who were actually in the restaurant could fulfill the order and hand it to you at the drive through window. And the, the minimum wage in North and Dakota was the, lower than here. The minimum here. wage in North Dakota was lower. So collectively, the company, the corporation, was saving money by paying the people in North Dakota instead of paying someone who was actually at the drive-thru in Oregon because like in Oregon and Washington and likely California the minimum wage was higher than it was in certain Midwest states. I went through that drive-thru after you did the story and I said uh, how's the weather in North Dakota? And the lady <laughs> paused and she said it's cold. So <laughs> there it was. Uh, I got you know my, my little smile out of that thing but what was it like? Did you get to go to their house? Did you get like you knock on the door and say, "Hey, you got any nuggets here?" <laughs> no, but uh, I got to see Fargo, North Dakota, which was Whoa. pretty darn exciting. Was that a thrill for you? Uh, not exactly, because we got our car broken into. We kind of skimped on the uh, travel budget, so we stayed in a not great area of town in Fargo, North Dakota. And- Car got broken into. Interesting. So, yeah. Okay. Good story. Yeah. Let's play the five at the, five. I don't know. The five at five. Here's a weird story. I'm leading with this one. The NFL suspended Bills offensive lineman Barbie Hart. Bobby Hart. Got a one-game suspension. League said he took a swing at a Titans player following Monday night football. Instead, he hit a Tennessee coach. The league said it is an unsportsmanlike conduct violation. Bills won the game 41-7. to uh, Neither the Titans player who Hart took a swing at nor the coach were identified by the NFL. But uh, uh, apparently they entered the tunnel near the end zone and there was a confrontation and Hart, who played three games for the Titans last season as a backup offensive lineman, is on a one-year deal, um, and he is uh, getting a suspension for one game for throwing a swing. And a number two, go. Okay, so the Houston Astros get another AL West title. This is their fifth one out of the last six, and then the one they missed was in the 2020 season, which we all know what happened there. So this is basically their fifth straight division title. I saw the headline and I can't still I still can't shake the idea that they're cheaters. So I'm really only including this in the five at five to be like, are we have they shaken that yet or are we still no, looking at them with a side eye? Side eye. Okay. There you I, go. I don't know. It's just how I feel personally. But I Sean, want, I'm Steven? bringing it up for discussion. 
Sean or Steven, Astros, you forgive them or no? I mean, I don't think they're the only team that's cheating out there. Like, am I crazy <laughs> to think that? So Everyone's doing it. Yeah, I, <laughs> I have forgiven them. Really? Yeah. I think yep. everybody's Sean. doing it. Everybody's trying to get an advantage. And so, like, to keep holding it against them, I'm over it. I'm not over it. I'm not a huge MLB guy, but I just, you know, I definitely think of the Astros as just a, uh, a franchise that I'll never root for. Scummy. Number three in our five at five. The family of a Utah Little Leaguer is suing Little League Baseball and a furniture company. A Utah kid, uh, Easton Oliverson, who's 12 years old and from St. George, Utah, suffered a skull fracture and bleeding on the brain on August 15th. He fell at the players' dormitory in Williamsport. He's had three operations. He's battled a staph infection. He's not doing well. Uh, had a craniotomy and has been hospitalized in Pennsylvania and Utah. He got discharged last week. That's good. But apparently there was no railing on the top bunk of the bunk bed. There's a negligence lawsuit that has been filed on behalf of his parents. The lawsuit seeks $50,000 for the boy's care, plus punitive damages. Uh, this is not a, uh, there's no win in this one, but uh, it just makes me sad. Like this Little League Baseball, Little League Williamsport, that's all supposed to be joyful. It's not for at least one Little Leaguer. Anna, number four, go. Uh, I'm including this one only because it's kind of on theme with the show. LeBron James is now bald again. He's shaved his head. He's with, you know, was wearing the headband in, you know, different ways. And I guess he actually had used some hair restoration treatments as well. But he posted a photo of himself in the barber chair. He is now bald as beautiful. Congratulations to King James. Standing <laughs> ovation. <laughs> Ain't nothing wrong with that. No, Be not at all. Beyonce sang about it one time. Did you guys know that? About his baldness? Oh, no, just about baldness in general. If I were bald, even just for a day. LeBron knows what I'm talking about. I felt like LeBron was going bald at like 16. He Steven? was. Steven, he was. back me up on that. Yeah. Yeah, he was. Yeah. Can't fight it. He was holding on. He was holding on to on. that uh, receding hairline thing, you know? Well, the headband just kept going farther and farther back. <laughs> <laughs> Too much big stress. headband. Too, Too much, much stress. stress. on him. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to chase but Jordan. Got, he's, got a, he's got a nice bald head, though. Like, not, not everybody who goes bald, you know, should. Right? Right? Like... What do you mean, not, should? Well, like, they don't have to yeah, control over it? Like, oh, choice. Not a choice. Let me, let me reverse that. I'm just saying. Like, not, some people go to shave their head, and you're like, oh, oh maybe, no. maybe you shouldn't have done that. You had a big dent in there that you didn't know about. <laughs> yeah. Or saying. a birthmark. You had a big old Gorbachev birthmark on oh, your head. Oh, my god. Like, Gorby. Do you remember when Gorby went and shaved his head? No. The barber was like, oh, maybe not. No. <laughs> Finally, number five, please. Number five. The fifth thing in our five at five. How about this one? Nick Chubb, Browns running back, scored a late touchdown versus the Jets that cost his team the game. He took the blame. Said he should have just gone down instead of scoring in the final two minutes. He scored on a 12-yard touchdown run 
with 155 to play. Put the Browns up 30 to 17. Rookie kicker Cade York misses the extra point. Jets were out of timeout. Jet Browns could have just kneeled on the ball and ended the game there had Chubb not scored. Instead, you guys saw it. The Jets became the first team in 21 years to overcome a 13-point deficit in the final two minutes of a game. Chubb taking the responsibility. I don't put it on him. I think he's like, look, I get it. You want him to be a good teammate, all that jazz. But I I get it strategy-wise, hindsight. Probably you guys could have just fell on the ball and kneeled, ran the clock out. But that's a 13-point league with two minutes to go. A lot of things have to go wrong, including Joe Flacco to Corey Davis, wide open down the sideline for 66 yards, including an onside kick, including Flacco then driving the Jets down the field again and throwing another touchdown pass with 22 seconds left. There's just a whole bunch of things that went wrong that could have been fixed. I don't put it. I don't at all put it on Chubb and the Browns. That's the five at five. Steven, Sean, do you blame Nick Chubb? Is that a bad situational play to score the touchdown? Yeah, I do. I blame him. I, it's it's well known. You were betting on the game. Well, I had the Jets, so I actually uh, I was happy about it because I did have the Jets on the money line and plus six and a half. It was one of my best bets. Bet the game on the weekends. Check it out, 9 to 10 a.m., everybody. But um, <laughs> no big deal. What were we talking about? Uh, yeah, <laughs> Forgot. So, uh, yeah, so uh, no, it is. like Analytically, like you, I think people know this now. Like You can't be doing that. This is all what happened in college football as well. North Carolina recovered an onside kick, ran back for a touchdown, and almost lost to App State because of the same thing. Just know the situation. I think that's just awareness of what's going on in the game. So if you're Nick Chubb, you need to know to get down in that situation, and it's a guaranteed win. This was the only way the Jets could survive that game was by allowing a touchdown, and he did that, and it, and it come back to bite him. Yeah, I just I, I get it, ideally, but you know maybe he should have fallen down. But what do you do when the opposing team out of timeouts goes? You know what, our best players to let let you score. You still fall down. Yes. Yeah. You definitely just fall down. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Last year, uh, or two years ago, didn't he have a similar thing where... And he did. He ran out of bounds at the one-yard line against the yeah. Texans. And he was like, I'll never make that ma mistake again. Yeah, people got mad at him for that. But guess what? They won that game. He scored can't the touchdown. Please you can't please everybody. You can't please everybody. score a touchdown, you piss people off. Yeah, but what's funny is, on one hand, he's he's taking accountability for it. He's saying, yeah, I probably shouldn't have scored right there. Cost us the game. But then he goes on to say, but a lot of things went wrong, not just one thing. Collectively as a unit, yeah, that's as a the team, correct, we could have all done sentiment. things different. So many yeah. things went wrong for the Browns. So like things. Amari Cooper but, uh, butchered the uh, onside kick recovery, and then they let Garrett, they let you know Joe Flacco storm down the field twice and throw some big passes. Like, How do you give up that 66-yard touchdown? That, that, to me, was the, like, what happened there? Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it's all Nick Chubb, but... They they would have won the game. Like the game would have been over had he just fallen. So yes, a lot of things did happen, have to happen, but they all did. Every single bad thing happened to the Browns. Yes. And you know what? The Browns kind of deserve it. Yeah, I wasn't about, about it. it. Yeah, think about it. All right, we're gonna talk about Oregon going to Pullman, Washington, and we're gonna talk about Oregon State hosting USC on Saturday for what might be the final time at Research Stadium. We'll talk about both those things coming up next. <laughs> Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game.
Morgan traveling to Pullman, Washington with Dan Lanning and Bo Nix. The Ducks trying to stay ranked, trying to start Pac-12 play with a win in Pullman. Meanwhile, Oregon State at home in Corvallis at Reeser Stadium hosting USC for what feels like the final time the Trojans will visit Corvallis. I want to talk about these two games. Uh, Dan Lanning talking about Washington State and Cam Ward here. I think this is an interesting clip. Lanning preparing, he's a defensive guy, preparing for the coup grade. Yeah, they um, they are. They're more balanced. You know, it's unique. When I've played teams like this in the past, you kind of carry one defense, and it's what you have to play, you know, the entire week, and it's usually a little bit unique um, for that. That being said, this they still have 11 personnel. They have 12 personnel. Um, like you said, they use the tight end. Um, so it's more to prepare for. They do they do a lot more, um, but they still can create some of those issues that the air raid that can, uh, you know can, can create. So not as much time can be devoted to one thing in practice, and I think that's a challenge. They do they do a good job of mixing up, and their tight end certainly has caught a couple passes this year. Does a good job. I'm going to say something here. This game is kind of why Dan Lanning was hired by Oregon. Kind of because it wasn't Washington State that I think Oregon's brass was thinking about when they made this hire. I think they were thinking about USC. I think they were thinking about kind of the trend with offenses uh, uh, being kind of the offensive-minded uh, you know, mindset that, that a lot of college programs have. Uh, Mike Leach, uh, Lincoln Riley, uh, certainly what Washington State is trying to do on offense. I think you know the trend that we have seen probably since 2010 and Chip Kelly really came on the scene at Oregon, is that, you know, football has become very offensive-minded, very quarterback-centric. I think Oregon was trying to deviate from that and pick a very defensive-minded coach that they thought could maybe make some inroads against offenses like this. So I think this game is is why Rob Mullins believed in Dan Lanning. Not this game specifically, but games like this, I think, Cam Ward and Washington State have been pretty good on offense. Not great, but pretty good. But this is going to be a big test for Lanning. And I have seen coaches, Mario Cristobal comes to mind, go to Pullman feeling pretty good about themselves and lose. I was there a few years ago when Mike Leach kicked Mario Cristobal's butt on the field. The students at Washington State jumped the railings. And, you know, it was, uh, you know, uh, uh, just a scene there in Pullman. And I remember after the game, Oregon's post-game news conference happened in the Washington State locker room, weight room area. And I can remember Rob Mullins, the Oregon AD, standing like on a near a squat rack where there was a barbell and a couple of 45-pound plates on the barbell, and he was kind of leaning against it. And I thought, this is surreal. But this is the total most Washington State thing ever. It's a tough place to play. Psychologically, if the fans are into it in Pullman, and I think they will be this year, it's a dicey game. I'm not willing to make a pick yet, but guys, I think this is a uh, a big the next big test for Dan Lanning, and I kind of think this is the kind of game he was hired for. I agree with you because it's kind of like the opposite of Lincoln Riley, right? You know, Lincoln Riley's this offensive genius, and so USC brings him in and says, okay, well, he's going to be able to run laps offensively against these other Pac-12 teams, and that's what he's doing so far. It's the same thought with Dan Lanning, more of a, you know, a defensive genius, uh, potentially. He's going to be able to, you know, teams like Washington State really out-scheme them and be able to uh, to take down offenses like that. So it's a huge test, and this is the kind of game, like you mentioned, that Mario Cristobal might lose, going the pull 
Coleman coming off of a big win. I remember back in 2018, the Ducks beat Washington at home, and then they go to Pullman next week riding that high, and they get dominated by Gardner Minshew. So it's a big test. I think, you know, we're going to learn a lot about Dan Lanning this week, just like we did last week, is, you know, is is this team going to come ready to play week in, week out? Because that was a problem under the Cristobal regime, and uh, I'm, I'm excited to see how they handle the atmosphere. It's going to be tough. Yeah, and it's going to be a different circumstance because last week, you know, going into that BYU game, there was a lot of questions still on how good the Ducks were. Now, we kind of know that the Ducks are a good team, and the target is put back on them. You know, after that Georgia loss, the target went away. The target's back on them. And you talk about Pullman being a tough place to play, John. I mean, it's crazy. And, uh, you know, those fans are going to be psyched. They're 3-0. and They feel like they're undervalued. They should be ranked right now, just like Oregon State fans. So, you know, with the Ducks coming in, it's a game that, you know, the Ducks probably should win. But tough place to play, and now the target is on you. Can the Ducks fight back and uh, you know take that, take the target, and uh, you know prove why they have that target on them? Be a Pac-12 contender. Three and zero Washington State at home facing the two and one Ducks. Jake Dickert, the coach at Washington State, uh, was asked about Oregon. He says, "Throw out the tape from Week One." Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't judge Oregon on the Georgia game. Georgia's on another planet. Okay, they just are when you watch that team play. And they've improved each and every week. I thought they had a great bounce back week, uh, week two. I mean, I, to score 70 points, I don't care who you're playing. And I have a lot of respect for Eastern Washington. And then to have BYU come in there, who is a big physical football team that we got to see firsthand last year, uh, it's impressive. You know, they're, they're big at the line of scrimmage. They're physical, they're long, they're tough. And then they surround it with a bunch of speed on the perimeter, right? They added the quarterback. Uh, who has tons of game volume, and I think he does a really good job, and he's a great athlete. So um, similar scheme offensively to us. Uh, you know, a lot of formations and movements. You go back uh, throughout the coordinator's history, even at Florida State, they do a lot of different things, and they've been known for defense really, you know, since I've been here the last three years, and, and the personnel matches the style that they want to play. So uh, impressive football team, and it'll be a tremendous challenge that uh, we got to get ready for this week. So I was asked today, I went on KJR Radio in Seattle, and I was asked to rank the Pacific Northwest teams. You know, Washington, Oregon, Washington State, Oregon State. Rank them one to four. They're 11-1 and one collectively. I Guys, I put Washington at one. I just think Michael Penix Jr. right now looks like the kind of quarterback that could take a team to Vegas and play for the championship in the conference. And I don't think Washington has that traditional great back that they've had at different times. But they've got good receivers. They've got speed on defense. I think they really underachieved a year ago under Jimmy Lake. So I think it was a little bit uh, um, a little bit of misleading to kind of look at last year's record. and Like, they look like a 10-win team. So I put them one. I'm having a hard time picking who's the second-best team. Because I think there's a gap after Washington. And I think Oregon is in it, and I think Washington State's in it. Uh, and I think Oregon State is probably the number four team in the region right now. And I'll tell you why when we start talking about their game. But do you guys agree with that? Do you think it's Washington one? And then is it a question between Washington State and Oregon? Or do you like Oregon as the number two team? I think it's a question for who's number one between Washington and Oregon. And maybe that's just based off what we thought going into the season, but I do think that those two are ahead of Oregon State and Washington State. And I can see where you're coming from with Washington. Now, you just look on the field, teams that they beat, you know, Washington took apart Michigan State. That game wasn't close from the get-go. And the way they did it with Michael Penix Jr. throwing down the field, 
it was a good sign to see if you're a Washington Huskies fan. So, you know, I agree with you. I think they're a 9-10 win ball club that is going to be competing for that Pac-12 uh, championship. I just think Oregon, you know, again, I've gone back to this so many times is I didn't expect them to be close against Georgia. So that that loss to Georgia, I've thrown it out. And now they took they took care of BYU. That game wasn't close. I think Oregon's the number two team at least, and I could argue they're number one. Um, as far as Washington State and Oregon State, it's hard to say. You know, Washington State got that win at Wisconsin, but, you know, it's such different styles between Washington State and Wisconsin. Maybe that's the reason why they got the win. I think Oregon State is actually a better team than Washington State, so I would put Washington State at the fourth spot. I I, I want to talk about Oregon State coming up. Sean, I want your opinion as well. If you have a take on the four Pacific Northwest teams, 503-417-7575. Tell me who's the best in the bunch. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I'm not making an official pick yet on the Oregon Washington State game. You got a feel for it? 503-417-7575. And by the way, who's the best team in the Pacific Northwest? I think it's Washington right now. I could be talked out of that. Jonathan Smith and Oregon State will host USC. Lincoln Riley. Jonathan Smith talking uh, about Lincoln Riley and the USC offensive scheme. Yeah, he does it well. Um, they can. They Yeah, they can throw it. They got a good quarterback in it, but they can run the ball. They got a good scheme there um, where you got to be able to defend both of them um, because they are. They got a real balance to them. Counter play with, you know, pullers, zone scheme, get the ball on the perimeter, throw it long. Uh, they've got some creativity, some unique plays, as you know, screen game, trick play. They've got it all, yeah, and then that's why they had so much success. They've had a whole bunch of success. I watched the Fresno State game. You guys watched the USC Fresno State game? Yeah, unfortunately, I uh, had some had some money on Fresno State in that game. It's the second week in a row betting against USC. This offense is uh, it's a video game, John. They they've been really impressive this year. I keep thinking that. You know, they're going to run into a team that will move the ball on them. But the truth is, Stanford moved the ball on them. Rice moved the ball on them. You know, we talked about it with Yogi Roth earlier. People moved the ball on them. Fresno State moved the ball on them. And if, if Jake Hanner doesn't get knocked out of the game, it's probably a little closer. But USC, you're right. You, can, you, can't, you can't get field goals. You can't miss opportunities. And you can't turn the ball over against them because you're giving them an extra possession and they are lethal on offense. That said... I can't shake the idea of Oregon State running, rushing for 300-plus yards against them at the Coliseum a year ago. I'm not sold Oregon State can do it again because I just haven't seen it from Oregon State this season. have not seen them run the ball. But Research Stadium, different place for Oregon State. USC traditionally has had some issues coming into Research Stadium. Maybe it's distraction. Maybe psychologically they don't get up for the game. But, you know, I, I saw the Rodgers brothers knock off a Pete Carroll team. We have seen funny things happen at, at that stadium involving USC and Oregon State. So um, I, I just I, I am struggling to find a case here for Oregon State winning the game, but like I want to find a case if that makes any sense. Steven, how do you see this game? 
Yeah, I mean, if I think about it on the field, it's it's got to be USC or nothing. And I've you know I've kind of been against them the first three weeks. I thought they'd be in closer games, and they have you know dominated these games. But I still go back to they're causing so many turnovers. If they run into that team that just doesn't turn the ball over, how is that defense going to stand up? So if you're Oregon State, you're going to have to get that running game going. You're going to need a Sean Fenwick to go for 100-plus yards. You're going to need Chance Nolan to be very efficient when he throws the football. You look at last year's game, he was 15 of 19. You're going to need him to throw more passes and be just as efficient as he was a season ago down in L.A. I know he threw for four touchdowns and two interceptions, but he's going to have to have bigger plays this season just because that USC offense is so uh, it's just so elite, right? Like If you make one mistake and you turn the ball over, they're going to capitalize and get points and probably a touchdown. So Oregon State is going to have to play a perfect game. Um, you know, I don't have a good lean on it so far, but I mean, I think it's USC or nothing right now. I, I feel the same way. I don't, it, and no Luke Musgraves in this game. It, and this one's been interesting. He got hurt late in the Fresno State game. Uh, Oregon State last week, Jonathan Smith came on the show, and I thought he was sandbagging when he said, hey, we might not have Luke Musgrave for a couple weeks. Um, I'm now kind of wondering what's happening and why everybody's acting so weird around Musgraves. I have a theory about this. Um, and again, it's a theory. I'm just throwing this out there. I don't know this to be fact. If I know something to be fact, I'll tell you. But here's my theory. I do think he was injured in the Fresno State game. And I do think he is getting a medical opinion here. And he might be asking for a second opinion. And, and going down to California and getting a second opinion on whatever it is that's plaguing him. Is it a high ankle sprain? Is it something else? I've heard concussion. I've heard that it's an ankle thing. I, but what I'm gathering is that Oregon State is trying to be respectful of Musgrave and that Musgrave's camp may be getting a second opinion on whatever it is they're being told. Uh, and maybe that's something you do when you are slotted as a player who's going to be drafted. But it's a weird time of year to be out, and Oregon State without Luke Musgrave is not the same. And I think it hurts the pass game because I am very concerned in this USC-Oregon State game about the USC defensive backs. They're handsy. They are physical. They're not afraid to get a 15-yard penalty. Um, they, uh, they want to be physical, and I think they get a lot of reps in practice against the really athletic Big, physical USC wide receivers. They will be suiting up on Saturday against Oregon State against undersized receiving core who I'm not sure they're going to be able to get a bunch of separation against USC. So I think, you know, Oregon State's going to have to scheme guys open on the offensive side of the ball, and they're going to have to run the ball and just run the snot out of the ball to be in this game. If they don't, I fear that USC runs away with this one. Do you do you think that the Research Stadium crowd is going to have any part to it? Because this is going to be by far the biggest atmosphere that USC has played against the Stanford game. Uh, you know, was not really a huge uh, you know difference between the, those schools. But this is going to be a good home field advantage for Oregon State. And they're putting in a new sound system. I don't know if you saw this, John. They're putting in a full temporary sound system at Research Stadium. They're going to have more than 40 speakers will be placed on the new on the new lower seating bowl below the temporary press box on the west side of the stadium for the remainder of the season, and they're doing it starting this next week against USC. So do you think that could have any type of effect on the Trojans uh, if Oregon State can stay close? I'll be honest. I think the problems that USC has historically had in going to Corvallis have to do with psychology as much as anything. I think um, 
you know, we're talking about kids from Southern California who are used to playing in the Coliseum or used to playing a big football game at Oregon or a big football game at Washington or even Utah. Um, I do think it's psychologically different to fly in and then bus over to Corvallis and see the uh, hay fields and the tractors and then get to Reeser Stadium. And, you know, over the years, it's been like a 1950s-style half stadium and then the new side more recently. But I think I do think there's a psychological impact for a team coming in there to have crickets behind you and to look over across the stadium and see 27,000 with standing room only and a new sound system. So... I do. I will put that in Oregon State's corner, and then let's not forget Oregon State last season, 6-0 and at home. And you extend that to this year, you know, Oregon State's won seven straight at Research Stadium. And so I think there's a, there is a factor there, and you chalk that up if you're trying to make an argument for Oregon State being in this game or winning this game, you certainly would use Research Stadium. But it's going to take more than that. They're going to have to run the ball. And they cannot make mistakes. And Treshawn Harrison can't drop balls. And Anthony Gold can't drop passes. So you can't fumble against USC. You can't give them extra possessions. And if anything, like USC entered last week, and I kept saying, you know, if Fresno State can get a turnover or two, then they'll be in business. Like USC has just been almost perfect on the offensive side of the ball. So really a lot of pressure on an experienced defense, an experienced secondary. I just think USC comes into this game with, you know, on paper, looks like they are the better team. But here comes Oregon State, and what does this game mean to them? I, I It'll be interesting to talk to Jonathan Smith, talk to Jaden Grant this week, and, you know, we'll get Jack Coletto back on in, in a couple weeks. But um, I think it's going to be really interesting to see, like, does Oregon State show up like this is a Super Bowl for them? And does USC come in maybe a little flat after, you know, some big emotional games and, Hey, they're starting conference play, and oh, they're going to Corvallis. And you know, I, I haven't looked too far ahead on USC's schedule, but I keep waiting for USC to have kind of a letdown game. And uh, I maybe this is it. I don't know. Is it fair for me to just simply look at the box scores so far this year and think that week two Oregon State kind of needed a miracle to go win that game in Fresno, and then week three USC ran laps around Fresno State, or are the circumstances that much different? Because Jake Hayner got hurt, and I believe it was the second quarter against against uh, USC. Are the circumstances much different, or is that a fair way to assess uh, you know just how far these two teams are away from each other? I, I I think it's fair to some extent to say that USC the way they handled Fresno State you know was different, but Fresno State was at home in that U.S. Uh, in that Oregon State game. They were on the road against USC. Uh, Hayner plays the full game against Oregon State, doesn't. And let's be real, Oregon State doesn't beat people uh, by by getting into a track meet against them. Oregon State gets you in a headlock. They want to wrestle around with you in a phone booth. They want to run the football on you. They want to play enough defense. They want to make some plays, ugly it up a little bit, and then Chance Nolan, as Pat Hill said on the way out of the stadium at Bulldog Stadium, he said, Chance Nolan, that guy's a gamer. He's gritty. I like him. Like, they want to get you in that kind of game, and it's it's the game that USC doesn't want to play. So if Oregon State can get him in that kind of game and score with him a little bit, you know, Oregon State obviously has a chance. Well, you go back to last year when Oregon State beat Utah, uh, you know, that was a high-scoring game, 42-34. Oregon State did have the one turnover, but they ran the ball all over Utah in that game. 
right? 41 carries 200. Yeah, block two punts, too, yeah. in that game. 41 yep. carries 260 yards, three touchdowns. Is that the type of game that they need to beat USC, where they're scoring in the 40s, but yes. it's a lot where it's the running game. It's not necessarily Chance Nolan throwing. Yeah, I think what they need is they need USC to turn the ball over twice in the game. And then Oregon State needs to run the ball like they did last year. And if they do that, I do I do think they're you know they're in the game. I mean, I think they I think Oregon State can score and move the ball in USC. Everybody else has, so I think they can do that. But they can't get into a game where, you know, USC has you know four possessions in you know their first four possessions. It's they score twenty eight points. You can't be in that kind of game with USC because I just don't think Oregon State can consistently score like that. This is a Tall order for Jonathan Smith, but again, I'll go back to this. This is, you know, a, a real difference of approach. You got Lincoln Riley, at, you know, probably making more money than the entire Oregon State coaching staff. You've got USC coming in feeling pretty good about itself. Like, I think the entire conference would like to see Oregon State punch USC in the nose. Yeah, yeah and going to the USC schedule you talked about, you know, it doesn't seem like it's going to be a look-at spot. they got Arizona State at home next week, and then they're at home against Washington State, and then the big one at Utah. So there's really no games in front of them to look forward to. So it does seem like, as this being the only road game until October 15th when they go to Utah, that you know maybe they will be pretty focused on it. And, and- yeah, I would just say, you know, just as a pushback to something you said earlier, John, it doesn't feel like USC's really been tested yet. It doesn't feel like they've had any emotional games yet. Like, they, they ran laps against Stanford, and, you know, Fresno State was an easy one. Like, their score margin so far is crazy. It doesn't feel like they've really been tested. So I think that's an advantage for the Trojans here as well. Yeah, I, I, I want to see Oregon State. Like, that. I mean, look, everybody always says you want to start fast, but I really feel like Oregon State's first quarter this is the most important first quarter that they're going to have against any team this season. You have to play well in the first quarter against USC. They have to set a tone, like to see Oregon State moving the ball. And to Yogi Ross point, he says you take the ball against USC. You want the ball uh, because you want to go down and score and you know put them in a position where they're trailing you seven nothing. I I kept waiting in that Stanford game, you know, and USC led Stanford twenty one seven at the end of the first quarter. Fresno State game was 14-0 USC, end of the first quarter. So there's something to what Yogi Roth is saying, you know. Like, if you can get in a game with these guys where you can make them, you know, make them tighten up a little bit in the second half, sure. But nobody's been there yet. Like, you know, 66-14 over Rice. Like, you know, Fresno State was 45-17. But, you know, USC right now, it, it, it reminds me of kind of like, We've seen great offenses. Reminds me of Oregon when Chip Kelly was on offense. Like, you couldn't trade them a field goal for a touchdown. You had better be able to score on them, and you'd better be able to match them seven for seven and, you know, wait them out, wait for them to make a mistake. And, you know, I think if Oregon State can get in that kind of game, of course they're in it. I want you to leave it here. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Peter Sampson coming up in Portland. The Pulse, top of the hour. want you to be here for The Pulse, and Peter Sampson does a fantastic job. Stephen, tell us about your show on the weekends so people can tune in. Oh, yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's called the Believe in Blazers podcast, B-L-E-A-V, Believe uh, you know, me and my partner, Tori Jones, we just we record on the weekends usually. Then we put out the podcast, you know, sometime during the week. 
Uh, it's mostly just about the Blazers right now, so not a lot to talk about. But we come up with some interesting things to talk about and some theories that we got. So once the season starts, we're going to start doing it uh, at least once a week, maybe twice a week. It's going to be about the Blazers and just the NBA in general. So, uh, yeah, check that out. What's the enthusiasm level going to be like for the Blazers this season in your mind? Um, I think at the start of the year, I think there's a lot of optimism out of Blazer fans this season. And I don't necessarily feel the same as they do. I think I'm a lot more down on the Blazers than a lot of Blazers fans. But I think there's optimism because Dame's coming back and from everything we've heard. And there's no reason not to doubt him, right? Like, he's only told the truth. He says he's healthy. He says he's 100% healthy and he's going to be back to where he was. So I think that's where all the optimism is. But that schedule that they have at the start of the year, John, is really tough. And so I'm I'm not expecting a very good start for the Portland Trailblazers when their first 10, 15 games. So I think if they get into a slow start, fans can get a little worried about it. But I think going into the season, optimism is pretty high that the Blazers can at least get to that play in and maybe hopefully get to the seven, six seed. I'm 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 confused about Chauncey Billups. I I'm not sure if he's a good coach or not. Am I alone on that? No, it's a hundred percent correct. I mean, we we know nothing. Last season, you know, I always say that last season was a fake season. Like it wasn't real because we have no idea. They weren't trying to win. They were trying to lose. So he succeeded at losing. So I guess he's good at that. But we don't know if he's good at winning. And I, you know, I have a lot of optimism for him because he has said some things that I like to hear. Um, when he was assistant coach with the Clippers, they did some things that I liked. But can he execute it by himself as the head guy? It remains to be seen. But the respect that he gets from players could be big. It should be big, right? If you're Damian Lillard, you and you don't necessarily, you know. Not saying that he doesn't respect coaches, but if you're going to respect a coach, it's going to be Chauncey Billups, a guy who played the same position as you, was a finals MVP. So there is optimism in Chauncey, but yeah, there is no way to know if he's a good coach or not. Yeah, I keep coming back to that. Like, does, you know, is can he be a factor in a season? I hope, we, I hope that we are talking about it. Like, I hope it, you know, come January, we're talking about whether or not Chauncey Billups is the right guy because I think – if we're having that conversation, it means that there's a lot of things that are trending in the positive direction for the Blazers. And I, I get people all the time who say, oh, you just want the Blazers to lose. You're not. That's not. No, I my life is happier and better if everybody's winning. Like, it's so much more fun for me when everybody's winning. But when we get a team that has, you know, historically struggled or has occasionally been a train wreck and the Blazers have. I think we all kind of enter the season with a little bit of skepticism. That's, you know, that's all I'm saying. Yeah, and it's fair because you look at Vegas, they have them as the 10th best team in the Western Conference. So what are we really expecting, right? Like if it's a good season, they still are going to be in the play-in. There you go. Peter Sampson and the Pulse coming up top of the hour. Give Stevens believe in, is it believe in Blazers? Believe Believe in Blazers, B-L-E-A-V. Believe in Blazers, give it a look. And grab a podcast of this radio show. Sean, you don't have a podcast? What's going on? Sean's the only one who doesn't have a podcast. Sean needs a podcast. Who wants to do a podcast with Sean? We'll discuss that on tomorrow's show.